This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. We are Dr. Mattless for the moment, but that'll change. He's got some speaking engagement or something, but he'll be here soon. Uh, this is Jeff Simpson covering for him, and I'm joined here, of course, by Terry South, our wonderful producer. We're going to have a great show. We have a lot to talk about today. It's Friday. First of all, you made it, which is always great news. Fridays are the best, aren't they? Well, today is not just any Friday. Today is the Friday that we celebrate. I don't know if we celebrate it, but we might watch it. Game three of the World Series. I know Terry South will at least have it on one of the many screens playing at the same time on his TV. <laughs> I haven't really been watching much. Really? I mean, I flip over, get a score, move on. Mainly because the game is going to end after I need to go to sleep. Uh, what time do you go to sleep? About 10. Well, 10 okay. o'clock. It'll time. Okay, but you never know, because the first game, game one, they both right. started at but, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific time. On average, it kind of goes late. My wife is definitely <laughs> not interested at all. Oh, mine neither. And so trying to stay on top of that and then deal with everything else that goes on in the evening just becomes difficult. To, even just any sport, period, is, is tough to follow. See, that's interesting, because on the weekend, I feel like there's an obligation to stay up Beyond what I normally would during the week. Well, I attempt to do that. Then I just black out and wake up like <laughs> like yesterday afternoon. I get home and uh, what was I doing? I just sort of laid down on the floor. I was just kind of hanging out for a second. I'm like, oh, this is comfortable. I better not fall asleep. I have things to do. And like, you know, 40 minutes later, you wake up like, oh, what, did, what just happened? And it just, you know, the hours <laughs> we keep sometimes, it catches up with you later in the week. Oh, yeah. And you kind of pass out in the afternoon. Can I just tell you that's one of the greatest feelings you can experience? It's really, for me, it's, I mean, there's times where you wake up and you're like, oh, okay, that was good. I feel yeah. good. But it's so just, uh, just disorienting, just confused. I look over at my clock, like, what just happened to the last hour of my life, you know? But yeah, whatever. Apparently, I was tired. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm, I mean, I'm definitely weird, but maybe I'm alone in thinking that sometimes I just really like to fall asleep on the couch, wake up at two in the morning with that crick in my neck and think, yeah. oh, what was I thinking? <laughs> right. You're comfortable and then instantly not comfortable. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's my other problem. I Usually Saturday, uh, you know, Friday night, Saturday night is when I can stay up a little later, maybe catch a show or something. Sure. My wife doesn't really like uh, Stranger Things, of course. <gasps> I just checked. It's it's available. <sighs> Watch it after the show. Everyone listening, please. Okay. And so um, <laughs> yeah. my wife, not interested in that. I'll probably end up watching some of that either this afternoon or later tonight and just try to, you know work that into my schedule because yeah. I want to watch it. She doesn't really care. So apparently, See, I, and, and, and other news with, with Stranger Things, they're, they're introducing uh, a post show. A post? Oh, kind of like uh, what they have on AMC, like Talking Dead. Uh-huh. Okay. So you'll have, uh, it doesn't say who's hosting. Oh, it says actor and super fan Jim Rash. Jim Rash. I'm not sure who that is. Oh, uh, Jim Rash. Isn't he the dean of students on Community? Oh, is he? Is he the 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 bald guy with glasses? See, I I thought I could mention that you might be able to uh, have some reference. That's there. him. Oh, okay. Did you know that he's an Oscar winner? I have no idea. 
He co-wrote the film uh, The Descendants. Oh, okay. He's the one that famously, he and his uh, writing partner, that was the year that Angelina Jolie made that famous pose where like her yeah. leg is sticking out. Right. So they got up there to accept their award. Oh, okay. And two of the three presenters both did that. They stuck their leg right. out like that and they got huge laughs. Everyone knew the, the reference there. So yeah, so he's going to host the post game or post game show, the post show, <laughs> and it says the uh, tackles inspirations for the series, behind the scenes stories, analyzes every aspect of the second season, answering all the burning questions. So I know he's on Independent Film Channel. Is that where it's going to? Where is it going to air? I'm. I, it, it, I guess Netflix. So really? Netflix is advertising you watch the new season in its entirety before you dive into the after show. So it's on Netflix somewhere. Oh, you have to watch the whole season first. Well, I know. I don't, I, it might be in the string of episodes and then you see it at the end. So okay. they're saying watch the season and then you can watch the post oh. show. Didn't know if there was like some sort of a code that they give you to redeem after you've finished Maybe. watching the show. I don't know. So yeah, they'll have actors on. I mean, if you care for that stuff, sometimes it gets... I don't know. The, well, you mentioned it as one of the top ten uh, popular shows on uh, Netflix, the most right? Most stream shows, yes. So that makes sense. Yeah. So they do little, wow. put a little bit more effort into it. Now, the last season was more like Ghostbusters, or not Ghostbusters, but like Goonies, maybe like an right. ET with the, the, how the kids interacted on the show. Yeah. They say this year it's going to be more of like a horror movie. Like an 80s yeah. horror movie. So we'll see what they mean by well, that. Well, that makes sense because you watch the trailer and... Uh, the music being played to the trailer is Thriller, Thriller yeah. with Vincent Price's famous narration, mm-hmm. and then that laugh, of course. And uh, one thing I'm excited for is they go, it looks like it's Halloween at school because they're all dressed up like the Ghostbusters. Mm-hmm. So my uh, five-month-old... Oh, and, and by the way, the yes. Ghostbusters costumes are not just for fun. At one point, there's oh, like, there's like fu- there's don't functionality they? that happens. They use That's one of the Ghostbuster right. traps, and it works. The, okay, now so that, that, that'll all be part of it. But yeah. You kind of need. I mean, the whole show. You really need to, you know, yeah, go out on a limb to believe some of this stuff. But that, especially, <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how they do it. Uh, so my five month old mm. is going to be the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man oh, for Halloween, right? And my wife and I are wearing Ghostbuster shirts. We didn't want huh. to go all out with the, you know, the, the coveralls and, and backpacks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I mean, if you want to half step it, that's fine. It's just Halloween. Yeah, we do. I mean, we want to save money. Your, your kids' memories and stuff. It's fine. Yeah. Well, he's not going to remember anything. Well, it'll be fo- there'll be old. photographs, and he'll look at it and go, "Wow, it would have been better if you had the jumpsuit. Maybe, maybe, maybe you could like rent an ambulance. Come on, Dad." All right. Well, Step not that there's up. not that there's anything else going on other than the World Series and Stranger Things yeah. season two premiering today. But yeah. just in case there is, what can you tell us about what's going on around the rest of the country? The President Donald Trump blocking the release of some of the documents of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy while allowing a disclosure of about two thousand eight hundred documents, according to the White House officials. Some documents are being withheld due to national security concerns. Officials will use a six month review period to determine whether those could be released. So it was like, I think that well, I was reading somewhere, the date where they said these had to be released was put out like 20, 30 years ago. Yeah. And they waited till the last minute yesterday to go, you know, we need a couple extra months to look now, at these documents. Now, why is that? Um, some speculation is that maybe the FBI and the CIA aren't ready to let all the these documents out because it might be kind of embarrassing about how the investigation, maybe there were some mistakes. Because there's some... 
some uh, documents that show maybe they knew Lee Harvey Oswald was kind of moving in this direction. Didn't take it seriously, didn't take, or, okay. or didn't tell anyone, or didn't mm. stop it. I'm not exactly sure how all that goes, but and and part of it is everyone is just pouring through this stuff right now. Yeah, and so you'll you'll start hearing little. There was there was a phone call 25 minutes before the assassination to to a mm. place. And just, you'll hear little details that come out. And uh, we're not sure at this moment how they all fit because people are still trying to, you know, dive through almost 3,000 documents. Wow. And seeing as I'm not okay. going to read them all, I'm going <laughs> to wait till somebody else does and then go, hmm. Yeah, that's for the lawyers to do. The so lawyers says, get paid to read all that long stuff. The remaining records will be released with agency proposed redactions on a rolling basis in the coming weeks. The White House says the president has demanded unprecedented transparency from the agencies and directed them to minimize redactions without delay. Trump has initially said that all of the files will be released. They will be in six months, apparently. Hmm. Or at least they'll have those annoying like black lines across the page when uh, they redact everything. Yeah. So you'll read it like obviously the important information was just blacked out. So we get like the word the. Which is, and. I will say, is a very important word, by the way. It is. It does help with communications, <laughs> but it's the rest of the world, words that add the detail. Darn. The State Department on Thursday issued guidance on how it plans to implement new sanctions against Russia more than three weeks after the deadline imposed by legislation that Congress passed and President Trump signed. Under the sanctions law that Congress passed unanimously and Trump reluct- reluctantly signed in early August, the administration was tasked with naming by October 1st the individuals and entities uh, from Russia's intelligence and defense sectors who would be sanctioned. Lawmakers have questioned the Trump administration on the delay, but had said they were uh, continuously being stonewalled. After yesterday's announcement, Senator John McCain and Ben Cardin of Maryland, top Republican and Democrat senators on foreign, the, uh, on foreign policy who called out the administration for the delays, welcomed the move as a step in the right direction towards holding Russia accountable for its attack on our election. So, mm. moving forward. Uh, after almost five months lost at sea, two women and their dogs were rescued by a U.S. Navy ship 900 miles southeast of Japan. The women set sail from Hawaii in late May, bound for Tahiti, the Navy said in a statement. They lost their engine in ba- a bad storm, and they thought they could use their sails to make it to Tahiti. They veered off course, and their distress calls were never picked up because they were never close to any vessel and they were too far out for the signal to be reached by land. On Tuesday, a Taiwanese fishing boat saw the women and notified the Coast Guard with the USS Ashland arriving the next day. The women, Jennifer Apple and Tasha uh, Fubaya, it looks like, of Honolulu said they survived because they had a water purifier and bought enough food, including oatmeal and pasta, to last one year. It was them and their what? two dogs for five months on a boat. How long were they planning on being out? They were just going to go from Hawaii to Tahiti, but they had a year's worth of food for some reason. Well, that's... And a water purifier. Sounds like they're super smart. Five months. You can exist, you know, and they did. And they looked fine and healthy for, you know, living on a boat for that long. Well, good for them. Man, planning ahead always pays off. The video's interesting. They were really happy. When they were rescued, as you could imagine. Oh, yeah. Uh, a 10-year-old boy. This is our Anne Finally right now. At 10, let's see if you had any sort of... This guy's This kid's daring. No, I, I did nothing kid. by 10. He had been arrested after leading Ohio State Police on a 100-mile-per-hour car chase on Thursday morning. According to the Ohio State uh, Highway Patrol, the uh, boys 
father reported him missing after he took the family car from their home around 9 a.m. The chase briefly reached speeds of 100 miles an hour before troopers slowed the vehicle using a rolling roadblock. During the roadblock, one trooper made eye contact with the boy and directed him to pull over, but he continued to flee. Troopers then placed uh, stop sticks or you know spike strips, that kind of thing, yeah. in the roadway, but the boy drove into a ditch to avoid them, police said. <laughs> State troopers blocked the boy's ability to exit the ditch and made initial contact with the car or uh, intentional contact, so they ran into the car. Uh, the boy was then removed from the car, taken into custody without injury, police said. He was allegedly combative with one trooper kicking him in the chin. He Whoa. was transported to a local hospital for evaluation with a legal guardian. The incident is not the first time the boy has stolen the family car. A similar incident occurred October 16th when the boy took his mother's Dodge Charger from the driveway because he was bored. See, uh, this brings up a question for me because you always see videos of people getting into chases and then, you know, the the ultimate moment when they get out of the car, they get placed into handcuffs and taken into custody. The cops are a little rough with them, and mm-hmm. c- kind of understandably so, right? right. Uh, but how, what's the protocol when you're dealing with minors, especially somebody that's 10 know. years old? They they grabbed him. I think they're, I don't know, he verbally combative, and then, of course, it says he kicked him in the chin. And Sheesh. so, yeah, he's, uh, he's going to need some, uh, some talking to, I guess. That's twice now he's stolen a car. See, the... <sighs> The craziest thing I did involving a car before I was of the age to be driving, Hmm. maybe I think I was about 15 years old. I was the only person in my family that had not driven this big Dodge van that we had, where by the time we sold it, in order to honk the horn, you had to stick these two wires together. Oh, nice. So I wanted a chance to drive it. So I got the keys, uh, put it in reverse, and I drove down my cul-de-sac and back, mm. you know, kind of bobbing my head to some music, right. thinking I was really cool. You're a and then I just put it right back in right. the driveway, and that was it. Did anybody know? or No, right. no. I think I told my parents recently, and my mom was, like, disgusted. I was, I was like, Mom, this is, what, 20 years ago? Right. She's like, you did what? <laughs> You're like, it's too late, Mom. You can't be mad. I think it's because she's always felt like I was the good one. Right. You failed her. <laughs> failed her, Jeff. See, I used to, uh, when I was 15, 14, I, I, I got permission to back the car out of the driveway so whoa. we could play basketball. Yeah. So I would back the car out, put the brake on. You know, but she, this was sanctioned. Well, yeah. My dad's like, yeah, because they got tired of coming out and moving the car. Oh, yeah. So we grabbed the keys, go move the car. I couldn't tell anybody. The guy that was our insurance agent lived a couple houses oh, down. No. So my dad was terrified that he would see that and <laughs> our rates would go up. Cause yeah. We're letting the kid back up the car. Wow. Yeah. I I was not a crazy kid. I, I would have cousins every once in a while that would let me change the gears in their manual transmission Ooh, wow. car. And that was a lot of fun. Yeah. But uh, yeah. yeah. This, this is nuts. 100 miles an hour on the freeway. And you oh, just yeah. go for a joyride. I blame video games. My kid would not know how to do that if That's it wasn't true. for video games that teach or him how to drive a car. The internet, because remember right? there was that kid, uh, I want to say it was in Washington State. I remember this back when we lived in Washington, that basically taught himself how to fly an airplane mm-hmm. online and was just taunting police by taking pictures, posting them on social media, kind of a catch-me-if-you-can type of thing, and right. people were kind of rooting for him on social media to get away with this. <laughs> That's funny. But he gets caught just like everybody else does. Yeah. So. Yeah. Another, another time where my mom was a little disappointed in me 
was when we were on a cruise, and I was 18 oh, at this point. I thought so. you were going to say like it was like last Tuesday. No. no. <laughs> last Tuesday. No. Very disappointed. I was on a cruise, and if you don't know this, uh, on, a, on waters, on international waters, or just on the water, you can gamble at age 18. Oh, wow. So I wanted to go to the arcade with my brothers, who are both older than me. And they said, Jeff, give us a dollar so we can go to the slot machines. Mm. And we don't gamble in my family. So I was like, no, I'm not going to give you a dollar to go to the slot machines. And so they said, oh, okay, well, give us a dollar so we can go to the arcade. (laughs) And I said, okay, here you go. Yeah, sure. That's different. See you later, Jeff. We're going to the slot machines. Right. (laughs) So I didn't want to be left alone. So I went with them. They Mm. put their dollar in the nickel machine they both lost. And I won like three or four dollars. So what they chose to do is they went to my mom and told her that I had gambled. Oh, wow. Leaving out the fact that they had taken my money and gambled with it. Why would you implicate yourself? And then they videotaped me explaining to my mom that I had gambled and that I did not develop a taste for it. And my mom, the look at my mom's face, she was totally solemn. She's like, did it, I mean, did it make you want to gamble more? I'm like, no, no. Oh my gosh! I failed my child. Yeah. See, that's that's where you you uh, I don't know. The that's expectations funny. were a lot higher for me. I think <laughs> sometimes sometimes parents take things a little too seriously. I think. Yeah, but at the same time, kid. I mean, if you don't, maybe your kid ends up on the freeway being chased by the cops. You never know. It's yeah. that slippery slope. Um, yeah, you and I are kind of experiencing that right now, and I don't know if you're like this, but there are certain things that. My kids will do or say that in the moment I get I get kind of frustrated or angry and I'll you know yell and say what and then I take a step back from the situation and realize why am I getting so upset over something right. so stupid or what I've noticed is you know my my son will do something and you maybe take a step back don't don't react as what you want to react in the moment yes and then it becomes not a big deal. Yeah. Whereas if you put all this emphasis on it, it becomes cemented in my kid's mind that, oh, that's bad. And if I want to act up, I'll do that again. Yeah. So we've, we, uh, there's some, you know, you, you got to pick your moments, but you kind of step back, tell them, you know, treat it calmly and it just seems to dissipate and then it doesn't come back. Like there's times where he, you know, he'll say a word, he'll do something and you're like, please don't do that. Yeah. And that's, that's the end of it. But if you make it a big deal, then he goes, oh, that's a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, kids already today can't lay down in the backseat of the car on a road trip. Right. They're basically in car seats until they're 15 years old. <laughs> kids are already not getting to do a lot of the stuff that you and I were able to do as kids. And why, I don't know, as a parent, it, it, it takes me a little while to realize, wait a minute, why am I resisting this? Why am I not wanting them to do some of these things that I got away with and I turned out perfectly fine? Right. I don't get it. Mm. I think I just need to, to chillax a little bit. Anyway, I'm going to work on that. This weekend's Halloween, so maybe I can just let my kids go crazy, eat as much candy as they want, let them deal with the consequences later. I can do that, right? take a break for a little weekend. Anyway, I'm working on it. I'm getting better. Anyway, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, we're going to be speaking with David Hopkins, who's going to be talking to us about electoral rules and geography and how they are polarizing American politics. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, the Electoral College has been around since 1804 when the 12th Amendment was ratified, and it's still in place today. Some believe it to be an outdated system, but others see it as the only way to fairly represent small states and keep big cities from making decisions for the entire country. Here to talk with us about his book, uh, Red Fighting Blue, and explain how the Electoral College has changed American politics is David Hopkins, who's an associate professor of political science at Boston College. Uh, David, welcome to The Matt Townsend Show. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Great to be here. So this obviously is something that has been in the news a lot. And I, the first time I remember this being in a discussion point was back in the 2000 election. I remember I was in high school and George W. Bush and Al Gore, you know, the, the whole thing with Al Gore winning the popular election but losing in the Electoral College and what a big deal that was back then. And even more so now when the margin... Uh, between the popular vote and what Donald Trump got is so much wider. It was over 3 million votes, I believe. Is that correct? Yeah, 2.8 million votes. Wow. So I, I'm curious to know how the Electoral College got its start. How did we, how did we start the system? Well, the, the roots of the Electoral College co- go all the way back to the Constitutional uh, Convention in 1787. The framers of the Constitution, uh, on the one hand, wanted uh, the president to be separate from Congress. Uh, And so they they didn't want the executive branch simply to be selected by members of the legislative branch, because they wanted equal branches with the separation of powers. And so they, they wanted some other alternative selection process for the presidency. On the other hand, they were not that enthusiastic about a simple popular vote uh, for the president at the time. In fact, they, they weren't even anticipating the Senate to be elected popularly at the time. The senators would be chosen by the state legislatures, which was true for most of the 19th century. So they sort of came up with the Electoral College as a mechanism to, um, to choose a president um, without either the voters or the members of Congress directly voting on it. And that's sort of what the legacy that we've been left with ever since. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the advantages versus the disadvantages of using the Electoral College. Well, um, the initial advantage that the, the, the framers saw um, in a system like that is that it would um, allow for um, the uh, the, st- the sort of the state legislatures to coordinate and choose electors who um, they thought might themselves sort of engage in some deliberation over you know sort of who the next president should be um, and there was an idea I think that um, you know, that you'd get a, a, a good set of candidates that way. Now, of course, they didn't really anticipate the emergence of political parties the way that we know them now. And so the, the fact that the presidency would just end up being a partisan contest was not necessarily provided for in the original um, a- approach. And, um, 
you know, as it's actually evolved over time, actually, how it's actually worked over time, of course, have been the states have decided to select uh, their electors by popular vote. So we have a popular vote. It's just that it, it it's not a simple national popular vote, but it's state-by-state winner-take-all. And, um, again, the advantages there for the states is that if the states – take all of their electors and give them to one candidate in a winner-take-all fashion, then that sort of maximizes the, uh, the uh, uh, influence of each state. So the states sort of decided um, to do that. But one of the things, things, things that's sort of interesting and in how, how things have evolved over time is that in our politics today, we have fewer swing states than we used to have. And this is one of the main themes of my book. Um, if you go back 40, uh, 50 years, it used to be that most states were more or less up for grabs in a presidential election. And so the candidates would travel widely and campaign widely uh, in, a, in a presidential election year. They'd visit, uh, uh, you know, sort of most, most of the large states from, from one end of the country to, to the other. And so the Electoral College wasn't that visible in terms of its effect on, on candidate strategy, whereas today because so many of uh, the states are either red states or blue states very predictably from one election to the next, now the Electoral College really encourages candidates only to campaign and to visit and to uh, invest their, their resources in you know, sort of 10 or 12 states that really are up for grabs. And so now the candidates ignore big states that aren't uh, competitive, like Texas, if it's a Republican state, or California, a Democratic state, and they spend all their time in you know, Florida, Ohio, Michigan, the few states that really are still uh, the competitive states. So the, the effect of the Electoral College on how candidates behave is much greater now uh, than it was a generation or two ago. Well, that's unfortunate. So you said at least the, the number of these swing states is decreasing. So clearly, you know, we're seeing changes between red and blue states over the years. So what, how often or how frequently do we see these types of changes in states? How, how frequently do blue states become red states and vice versa? Well, it used to happen a lot. Um, if you look at the, the, the electoral map uh, um, in the mid-20th century, it was very common for states to swing, a lot of states to swing back and forth uh, between, uh, between the parties. Um, but starting in the, uh, in the 1990s, it became um, much more common for most states to, to sort of uh, permanently align themselves with one party or the other. Um, and so the decline in the number of swing states really starts happening. Sort of starts happening in the 80s, but it really gets going in the 90s. And by the time we get to 2000 and and the election since 2000, um, now only about uh, 30% of the country is really in play uh, in any given election. And the states don't tend to switch too much from one election to the next. Uh, a red state and in uh, in 2016 was likely to be a red state in 2012 and 2008 as well, and, and the same thing with the, with the blue states. So the the current era we're in now in American politics is one with a lot of stability on the map as well as a lot of polarization, and that that didn't used to be the case. Interesting. So you have these selectors for each state. What what are some of the consequences for these selectors? Because I assume that they could be allowed 
to vote against what they've been selected for. Now, what would happen if they were to do that? Let's say if they were supposed to be voting for President Trump, but they instead cast their vote for uh, for President Clinton or uh, Hillary Clinton. Yes, well, that's what's called faithless electors, and it does happen. In fact, even in this last uh, election, there were a few members of the Electoral College on, on both sides who did not vote for the major party uh, nominee when they, when they actually met in their state capitals to formally cast their electoral ballots. Now, it didn't change the outcome of the election, uh, but there's nothing in principle that would prevent... Um, an elector or a group of electors from um, from departing from the candidate that they are uh, uh, sort of pledged to, um, and actually choosing somebody uh, somebody else. Um, and uh, this is sort of a loophole in the Constitution that that goes back to the days when. Um, when there was an expectation that the electors would 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 be uh, perhaps exercising more independent judgment over uh, who they personally supported for the presidency. Um, now, the party's attempt to um, to select electoral slates of people who will be loyal to the party, um, they obviously don't want the electors to go off on their own uh, once they get to, the, uh, to, 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 to cast their ballots, but there's no constitutional or, or legal um, legally enforceable prohibition against that occurring, and if we have a close enough election and enough uh, rebellious electors, it, it, it could, uh, you know, we, we could get a very interesting situation that way. Interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about geography. How does geography play into this? Does it, how does it influence voters? Well, it influences voters to some degree because we're all influenced by the, the, the sort of environment around us. And uh, people who grow up in a certain part of, of the country um, will, will sometimes sort of take on the, uh, the political, uh, prevailing political attitudes and, and political predispositions of their, uh, of their family, of their neighbors, of the, uh, the other people that they know, of the people um, that they identify with. And so we, we've always had a country where there's been lots of political disagreement um, in, in different parts of the country. And, of course, uh, at one point we even had a, a war between two parts of the country. So, um, so that's, that's, a long, that's, that's a long-term um, truth about, about American politics. What's, what's new um, really over the last 20 or 25 years, however, has been that there's more difference in terms of party identification uh, from one region of the country to the next, and so um, you know what are what are now uh, the, the 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 blue states, the the states mostly in the northeast uh, and and along the west coast, um, are states where you know the the Democrats have a, a pretty stable numerical majority, and if everyone sort of votes the party line, the Democratic candidate is going to carry those states. And then the opposite is true for. Um, most of the southern states and a lot of the states in the in the sort of the heartland, the middle of the country, the, a lot of the states, uh, 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 you know, in the west before you get to the west coast, uh, those are now states where you know the prevailing um, the prevailing political attitude is is uh, not only ideologically conservative but is also uh, uh, very much pro Republican Party, and so the fact that we have this electoral system 
with different states uh, as elements of the Electoral College, with, with members of Congress who are elected from states and from congressional districts sort of on a geographic basis. Because we have this sort of these partisan differences from one part of the country to the, the next that are growing, um, it means that more states and more congressional districts are safely in the Democratic camp or in the Republican camp, and not, there's not much chance of a competitive race. And so the number of safe seats in Congress is higher than it used to be for this reason, and the number of safe states in presidential elections is also much higher, as we've, as we've discussed, than, uh, than it used to be. So it's not just that we have geographical differences, but we also have an electoral system that's based on geography. And so those geographical differences become very important in helping to determine the outcome of the elections that we have. So, David, do you feel like, because clearly in this last election, a lot of people were upset. There was, you know, you said 2.8 million voters voted for Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, but he still won the uh, the electoral vote. And do you think that this this system needs to be updated? Does it need to be done away with altogether? And if so, what would be the consequences or the benefits of doing that? Well, I do think that there are some, uh, you know, we have to be, we have to recognize some of the consequences of having the system we do have. And, uh, and this is part of what the book is about. And, and of course, one of those consequences is that uh, the, uh, the candidate who wins the national popular vote may not win the electoral vote. And we've had that happen twice just in the last uh, five presidential elections, as we know. Uh, we're, in a, we're in a time right now where the two parties are very evenly divided at the national level. In previous eras of American history, often one party has had a, 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 you know, a fairly stable majority, or elections have often been uh, decided by large margins. And so in, in, in cases like that, the Electoral College doesn't really matter all that much in terms of the outcome. But when you have two very uh, closely divided parties, and we have close elections, um, where at the national level, really, uh, the margin is going to be very small, then the fact that we have the Electoral College becomes a lot more consequential um, than it used to be. And, and I think it's a fair point to, to note that, um, that that means that, uh, you know, the candidate that more people would prefer to to be president doesn't necessarily win, and and that is a that's a serious um, a serious consequence, and that can happen in congressional elections as well because of our electoral system. The same party that wins the most votes for the House and Senate doesn't necessarily win the most seats, and that doesn't get as much attention as the electoral college does, but it's also another consequence of our system. Now, if we said let's get away get get away from the electoral college let's abolish the electoral college let's go to a simple national vote um that would solve the problem of you know that that people some people might have of of uh the the candidate winning uh with uh, you know the uh, popular vote and not yet not winning the presidency but it would have other consequences that i think we would also have to be aware of now that the we no longer have to worry about the states under this sort of hypothetical uh, future system with the national popular vote, and the candidates would compete more widely, and maybe we'd like that too. More parts of the country would be uh, 
would be part actively part of the campaign. That would also be a lot more expensive. Um, you know, for the candidates, uh, they'd have to run more broadly targeted campaigns. They'd have to uh, try to mobilize voters in a lot more places, and so they'd have to raise a lot more money uh, than they than they have to raise now. And they'd have to uh, probably spend more time on on fundraising. Um, and so, you know, there are benefits to any uh, reform or potential reform, um, but there are also downsides or other considerations. And so if we wanted to change, we'd have to sort of take stock of uh, the advantages as well as the disadvantages. You mean they'd actually have to reach out to all the voters? <laughs> they would. <laughs> I, I can see what you mean, though. It would cost so much more money. And just the hearing about the numbers from this last election, it's just mind-boggling just how much money is spent to elect a president. It's it's crazy. It kind of makes you want to take another look at what other countries are doing, you know, where they say, you know, we've got an election uh, campaign period that lasts from this date to this date. It's like a month-long period, and, you know, whoever can get the most votes from that one-month period is going to be the next president. What do you think of that kind of a system to, to get the, the costs of running an election down and uh, really focusing on the voter, each and every voter. Um, well, again, you know that you make a good point, and, and there are advantages to, to that. Um, we have very long campaigns in this country uh, that go on for years and years, and there are lots of other democracies around the world where um, you know that that that's not how they do things. Uh, they have very uh, they'll call an election, and the election will happen uh, you know a month or two later, and and it's all very short. On the other hand, those are also countries with different systems of government. If you have a parliamentary system where you already have the party leaders chosen, and um, you know it's just and it's just a matter of deciding how many seats each party gets in parliament it's a lot easier to run a short campaign one of the reasons we have such a long campaign in this country is that we have a primary system for selecting the president so the candidates first have to compete in uh... you know in primaries and caucuses in their own party before we even get to the general election because that's how we choose our presidential candidates they're not just chosen by uh, by the other politicians in the party. Um, and, uh, you know, some people might think that, well, that, you know, we should, we should do it the way other countries do it. But other people might say, well, hey, we, we like having the opportunity to choose our nominees ourselves and not leave that up to, um, you know, the politicians in the party to choose who the leader of the party is going to be. So, uh, once again, there are advantages, but there are also other, other considerations that, you know, or some people might actually be reluctant to uh, to make that change. You know, and maybe one month isn't enough time to dig up enough dirt on your opponent that you would need to get in order to sway the votes your way. Uh, David, just in closing, I'm curious to know if you feel like are, are we going to see any change anytime soon? Because uh, once again, you know, we have a president that was elected by the Electoral College and not the popular vote. Do you do you see this changing anytime soon? Well, you know, we don't tend to make those kinds of changes very often in this country. Um, if, if you look at, um, you know, constitutional amendments and other fo- foundational changes to our American system of government, they happen very rarely. And in part, that's because our Constitution is not easily changed. Um, 
but uh, since we uh, since we instituted the direct election of senators, and that was really about a hundred years ago now, um, we haven't really made any major foundational changes to our uh, constitutional system. And so, it's a it's always a sort of a safer bet to say no. Um, probably we won't we won't change, uh, or at least not not easily or, or quickly. Um, however, you know there are people who are are pushing for uh, a change, and there is an effort in some states to move to uh, a system where um, where we do uh, uh, allocate electors by national popular vote instead of by the state electoral vote. And if enough states throw their electors to the winner of the national vote instead of the winner of their own vote, we could effectively move to a system of simple national popular vote for the presidency without even actually having to change the Constitution. Um, and so that is, if we do see a change in the Electoral College, that's probably the way it's going to happen, is individual states acting uh, to, to change the way they um, allocate their electors in favor of the national popular vote uh, winner. I, again, would not say that's likely or, or imminent, but there, there is some sentiment to move to that direction. Some states have already, you know, considered that, and, and if, it, if we do see a change, that's probably how it's going to happen. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. We, we really appreciate your insight on this topic. His name is David A. Hopkins, and he's an associate professor of political science at Boston College. His latest book is Red Fighting Blue, How Geography and Electoral Rules Polarize American Politics. He is also the co-author of Asymmetric Politics, Ideological Republicans and Group Interest Democrats, and President Elections, Strategies and Structures of American Politics. He blogs regularly about current events at HonestGraft.com and can be found on Twitter at, at David A. Hopkins. Again, thank you, David, for your time. We're going to return here in just a moment with some more fun here on The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Dr. Matt is not with us today. He's, and he, uh, what was he doing? He's doing a talk somewhere, right? A speech of some kind. He didn't take a plane. He probably took his car. But it, it's interesting because you have some uh, you have some stats on window seats on airplanes, right? Which do you prefer, window or aisle? Or do you like the middle seat? I used to prefer window seats so that I could have the view on the takeoff. Now I prefer the aisle. I, I like being able to not inconvenience anybody by having to get up during the flight. Okay. And, you know, I just like to be the first one off. <laughs> I don't like the aisle because the uh, the the um, stewardess, steward, what are they called? Flight attendant. There we go, because mm -hmm. stewardess is inappropriate. Yeah. Um, they cart. They run into me all the time. Oh. I'm just sitting in my chair, my arm's sitting there, and they just come by and bam, the food cart just smacks into me. And then I'm on the other, if you're by the window, you have the, you know, you're, 
the middle is where I hate it because then you're like in the way of everyone next I wanna, to you. I want to talk to the person that family. prefers the middle seat. Yeah. The, <laughs> if it's your family, it doesn't matter because you yeah. know the personal space you can deal with that. But, you know, perfect strangers, you're like, oh, excuse me, yeah. for the entire flight. Um, but, yeah, if you're against the window, you can have the view, but then you're you're confined, and if you need to get up, you have to inconvenience everybody. So, But um, the article I found here in the, in the Telegraph um, talks about the pros and cons of window seat versus an aisle seat. Okay. Um, so it says window seat passengers have a solid surface to curl up against and unbeatable views to gaze out over, but they're also barricaded into their seat, forced to make a nuisance of themselves, as we talked about. Passengers with an aisle seat, on the other hand, have the freedom to move around the plane as often as they desire, plus a little more room to stretch their legs out, but there's always the danger that when they'll finally... Uh, against all odds, not off into a long-haul flight. They'll be woken up by a neighbor who needs to clamber over them to get out to do That's that. That's true. Or You're having to get up more. Mm-hmm. The uh, drink tray, drink trolley, as they call it, the, the cart will hit you, all those kind of things. So um, they talk with Dr. Becky Spillman, chief psychologist at a, uh, thera- at a uh, therapy clinic there in London. And she says, passengers who favor the window seat like to be in control. They tend to take an every-man-for-themselves attitude towards life and are often more easily irritable. Wow. They also like to nest and prefer to exist in their own bubble. Hmm. These are people in the window seat. Now, are these the people, do, are, do they kind of dominate the armrest as well? It doesn't say that. But Interesting. Possibly. Okay. You get that window, I'm that al- armrest I'm always room. the one that y- y- tends to let the other person take the armrest yeah. or not, you know, try to fight for the space. Right. But if, that's just if, me. If there's room. So right. it says they like to nest and prefer to exist in their own bubble. So if you're against the wall, no one's going to bother you. Yeah. You don't have to move. You're just over there. Well, and I mean, you can you can lean over and look out the window and not have to make eye contact with anybody. There's that. Okay. I love the guy you walk in. He's already got his headphones on. He's staring out the window before anyone sits down. You're like, oh, wow, <laughs> I'm getting some body language from you. Yeah. Um, I do like the every man for themselves attitude towards life. Hmm. As you sit against the wall. Yeah. It seems interesting. And irritable. So that's a cautionary tale. So when you're out there, you notice, wait, that guy's going to be irritable. Maybe I don't talk to him. That makes sense. The every man for himself mentality, because there's the Twilight Zone episode where William Shatner is looking out the window and thinks he sees some kind of a monster on the okay. wing of the plane. So he's freaking out. We're all going to die. There's a monster on the... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway... So that makes sense. Don't put the paranoid guy in the window. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Check. And then it says those that prefer the aisle seat are more likely to be of a reserved nature, less irritable, and more considerate of others. That, or they're claustrophobic, or simply a victim of a weak bladder who needs to get up and use the restroom. Okay. So you plan ahead. Well, I'll take the first part of that as a compliment. Champions of the window seat tend to be more selfish, she says, as well as less anxious seasoned flyers who are more confident in disturbing others because hmm. you don't there's not that social awkwardness of oh, excuse me and you got to step yeah over. so kind of aisle passengers are often more sociable and definitely more amiable as people they're also more likely to be restless flyers and less adept at sleeping on planes so there's some caution there it might be annoying no data on the the middle seat people no, they're just talking the two polar sides there of the aisle the middle seat people all that's written is they're just unfortunate yeah they didn't plan <laughs> ahead so 
Wow, interesting. Well, I'm going to have to think about that the next time I go on a plane. I Yeah, when I was younger, I preferred the window seat, but now that I'm older, for some reason, I just prefer the aisle seat. And uh, as of percentage-wise, it says windows preferred over aisles by just one percentage point in the polling that was done. Wow. So it's pretty split. Hmm. I guess depending on where you're flying or where you're coming from, there might be a good view that you could enjoy in the window seat. But... Uh, Hopefully the plane doesn't go down, because that window seat person might uh, take an every-man-for-himself mentality, just like you said, Terry. Anyway, we will return here in just a minute. This is the Matt Townsend Show. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson and Terry South here filling in for Dr. Matt while he's away with a splitting headache. Why do you think we choose to describe it as a splitting headache? Kind of how it feels. Hmm. Like your head is being split in two. Yes. Wow. It's very descriptive. That is terrible. Yeah. I really hope that's not the case. Ah, he'll be fine. Drink some water. <laughs> you, bo- you and I both know that's not going to happen. No. He's, he's going to drown it in a Diet Coke. I don't know. He says he's not doing that as much. Come on. Not sure, because, you know, we only see him for a period of time today, but... That's or during, true. The, during the day, we only see him for a little bit, but you know, maybe he is drinking more water. Well, at the retreat, he had a Diet Coke in hand. Yes, he and did. That's how he made it through that. Yes, he did. Yes. <laughs> well, we wish him well, and we'll have fun without him. Not necessarily because he's not here, but you in, never know. In spite of him not being here, there we go. This is hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. We've got a lot of fun topics coming up. We've got some MT news coming up. We'll be speaking with McKenna Baus. She's in the house. She's going to be talking to us about uh, relationships and how taking a friendship break from a relationship doesn't necessarily have to turn into a breakup. I don't know how that's possible. Yeah. The, it, uh, the, the article talks about an incidents where a woman got in a fight with her friend, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like they didn't feel like they weren't friends anymore. It was just tough to be together. Yeah. So they just mutually agreed, I'll talk to you in a, a period of time. Say, like, we'll talk to you in a month or sure. something, six months. And a way to do do that and have that sort of conversation, which as I'm reading it, I'm like, that seems odd. Huh. It seems like the friendship is maybe strained to a point where your lack of conversation is going to end up showing the need for that friendship because you're you're not communicating you're not hanging out together so are you friends but apparently you can take a break and then repair their friendship and come back so interesting i mean because there's that's always the go-to excuse when you're breaking up with somebody let's just be friends yeah yeah i i don't know if you can do that i will say that my oldest brother he and his wife when they were dating each other decided they were going to break up but I don't think it was a friendship break. I think it we're just going to break up. And then when they were apart, they were just miserable. And I think that was their answer that they were looking for, that they needed to be together. Oh, wow. So I'm curious to know more about this friendship break. Yeah. So we'll have that, that at the works. end of the hour. Okay. And uh, I'm, I'm Terry, when you are looking for answers, who do you typically turn to? Or what do you typically turn to? 
I usually look for a variety of sources. Okay. I don't just go one place and find something. I'll look for – I try to find a consensus of opinion. Mm-hmm. So or, you, or even the dissenting opinion. What's the what's the kind of the the group thought of what's against this idea? You yeah, know? it's 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 the Amazon review approach to life. <laughs> you look for all the positive reviews, which are always glowing about every product. Well, you got to look for the verified then, purchases, though. Well, there's that too. Then you okay. look for the negative ones, and it's like this thing broke the second I touched it. It's garbage. Like, well, okay, so they had some manufacturing defects. Okay, you yeah. look for the middle ground, and you can kind of see. Okay, it was all right, but it didn't quite fit this so you know you get some real uh, opinions on the product that's how the yeah that's how i use amazon reviews okay and i kind of do that with other things you try to get a you get your extreme viewpoints okay so that's that and then what's in the middle and you kind of take that all into assessment because you can't just go to one source because that's one opinion yeah no those amazon reviews can be very telling because we bought one of those balance bikes you know those that don't have any pedals right. don't have any training wheels or anything like that and somebody wrote, gave a one-star review, mm. and their comment was, it didn't come with any pedals. Yeah. <sighs> it's like, well, that's the point. Read the product <laughs> description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you, you just kind of – you have to do some research, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. You can't just go one place and take that person's word for it or that organization's word for it. Kind of get a, a, a variety of viewpoints to see what's actually out there. Do you feel like there's somebody, whether it's in your family or in politics or in your church, that you tend to uh, listen to more often depending than on, not? Depending on who they are mm-hmm. and their background counts. Okay. Like, you know, just what do they, you know, what's their, what is their experience that's informing this opinion? Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. If you, you have someone who, say, is a mechanic, but they're giving you political advice— what does that right. really yeah. come from? Yeah. So you, you maybe talk to them some more and see where, where they're coming from that way. But I'm going to guess their their job doesn't necessarily help to inform their political ideals. Yeah. But maybe maybe there's something else that happened there. Okay. Know? Well, but just because someone says they're a political scientist doesn't mean they're the expert end all be all when it comes to some say like politics or something. Sure. Yeah. But at the same time, you wouldn't talk to them about your car. Exactly. But maybe exactly. they have some experience with fixing cars. Who knows? But, you, I mean, you have to kind of look at the whole the whole person and figure out who they are before you just take their advice. So uh, in a little bit here, we're going to be speaking with Scott McConnell, who's going to be talking to us about where people look to have their problems solved. And it's not necessarily uh, the places you would think. So very interesting topic coming up here in just a minute. And, uh, of course... Toward the end of the show, during the next hour, actually, in about 45 minutes, we're going to have screen cleaning. This is our 21st episode, and it's a Halloween episode, and uh, we'll give you more teases on that here in just a bit. But first, let's head over to Terry South and find out what's going on around the rest of the country. What's up, Terry? President Trump on Thursday declared the opioid crisis a nationwide public health emergency, a step that won't bring new dollars to fight the scourge that's killing nearly 100 Americans a day, but will expand access to medical services in rural areas, among other changes. The declaration falls short of a more sweeping national emergency, but administration officials said it it will still allow them to use existing money to better fight the crisis. Trump said he hoped a massive advertising campaign, which sounds a lot like the 1980s Just Say No campaign, which might might have a similar impact, meaning the Just Say No campaign did not have much of an impact, (laughs) and that's what 
it seems like President Trump was saying yesterday they want to do is to inform people to not take drugs yeah. and we'll stop it right there. Yeah. I'm like, well, that didn't really work then, and it's already a huge problem. And they're actually getting these drugs from their doctors through a prescription. Yeah. And then afterwards, they're getting it through other means because they're kind of addicted to the strong painkiller. Absolutely. So there's lots of commentary on both sides of this, but Mm. it seems like um, this isn't as robust as people were hoping for when they were running for election in New Hampshire and in uh, Vermont and that northeast area that has a huge problem with these types of drugs in the in the communities. So, but they're saying it's a good first step. Uh, not necessarily. <laughs> they're saying we, we the first step should have been done a long time ago. Okay, because he's actually said this three times now. And okay, fine. Now we're actually doing this, hmm. right? So it's kind of interesting. Um, and this this number was interesting. Uh, declaring an emergency under the Public Health Services Act gives Health and Human Services Secretary wide discretion to respond by accessing the accessing the public health emergency fund. Hmm. Right, so the money yeah. they're talking about that's accessible is the public health emergency fund. That fund, of course, only has fifty-seven thousand dollars in it. What? They're, people have been asking for billions to deal with the opioid crisis, but the fund they're accessing has fifty-seven thousand dollars. That's nothing. I know. So wow. obviously, more money is going to need to be allocated. Yeah. But you could. There's by doing this, they've they've made it so there needs to be three more steps before things can actually happen that may be able to help. So uh. we'll see what happens. This November, be thankful for your lovely four-day weekend. The United States Senate might not be so lucky. Majority Leader Mitch, as this calls him, I hate fun McConnell, allegedly <laughs> told members this week that they might be forced to stay in session the weekend before Thanksgiving as well as the actual week of the holiday. The side of Politico. Thanksgiving is normally a the week is normally a recess for Congress. Republicans have just 14 legislative days left before Thanksgiving. And uh, the Thanksgiving recess, and they are ambitious task of pushing through tax reform before the end of the year. So McConnell's threats have failed to impress anyone. Last week, the Senate observed its normal Thursday half day, despite McConnell's warning of a crackdown of the light work week. Yeah, so they call him I hate fun McConnell. <laughs> he's going to make them have to work through their Thanksgiving recess. Wonder so. if he resents that. I don't think he cares. Okay, I think he's like, we got to get this done. Yeah. Uh, U.S. Defense Secretary James Mattis visited Friday morning uh, the heavily fortified border between North Korea and South Korea, known as the Demilitarized Zone, amid heightened tensions over the North's nuclear program and the war of words between Trump and Kim Jong-un. At the DMZ, Mattis was briefed at Observation Point by Joint Security Area Commander Lieutenant Colonel Matthew S. Farmer and his South Korean counterpart, Mattis, visit the South Korea, where he landed on Thursday, is seen as paving the way for a much-anticipated official trip by Donald Trump in one week. Mm. Right? There's an awesome photograph. Mattis, with his back turned to the border, talking to another dignitary of some kind, and in between them, you see a guard tower on the north side, and there's three north soldiers just kind of staring at him. It's kind of an interesting photograph. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> You're like, wow, look, there's some guys. They're very concerned about who that guy is in the suit. And finally, for the better part of a decade, an agile black-clad thief eluded police in Osaka, Japan, as he pulled off burglary after burglary. But the reign of the crook who came to be known as the Ninja of Heisei appears to be over. And he came. it came with a big surprise for the cops. The suspect is 74 years old. What? They go, I thought I would never be... He, thought, he goes, I thought I never would be caught. 
uh, says Musaki Tenjawa, who was arrested after police say he broke into an electronic shop over the summer and stole $240 in cash. He was dressed in all black, just like a ninja, said the police. Uh, Tenjawa is uh, uh, described as unemployed, but that's perhaps because his alleged nighttime work was so lucrative. Wait, aren't a lot of 74-year-olds unemployed? And retired? Yeah, but not necessarily ninjas. <laughs> okay. Uh, police think he stole an estimated $250,000 in hundreds of break-ins at homes and businesses beginning in 2009, often while demonstrating remarkable agility by, you know, running along rooftops and yeah. climbing up walls like a ninja. That's right? crazy. The big break came when a thief was caught on a surveillance video lowering the neck warmer that he wraps around his face. A neck warmer. And they, wow. they got a glimpse of his face and put that out there, and some people were able to turn him in. But I yeah. would have gotten away with it, too, if it wasn't for that blasted neck warmer 74 year old ninja see he used the wrong excuse you don't say i didn't think i'd ever be caught we just had a uh, somebody that uh, led police in a high-speed chase the other day right that said oh it was on my bucket list oh yeah yeah, yeah. so he should have just used that and somebody that's 74 years old you would think would be very concerned about their bucket list right you getting s- those and, things done and you say bucket list and people are like oh that's okay that's nice oh, you get everyone's, a pass. everyone's got a bucket <laughs> list <laughs> wow i'm my, my goodness 74 years old the video of him jumping around is pretty pretty impressive for once you realize oh wait he's 74 wow that's crazy because it looks like he's mm. you know like in his 20s so let me ask you a question. Okay. How offensive do you find the song Jingle Bells? Dashing through the snow? Yeah. In a one horse? I don't find that offensive at all. That's great. Should I be? Should now, I? Okay. Is, there, is there an alternative verse we haven't heard? Because you know there's always those songs with the 14th verse that's offensive. That's true. Okay. Let me let me add another layer here. Okay. Imagine uh, it's being sung through a bullhorn. Okay. That's annoying. Okay, and now imagine it's being slurred slash sung through the bullhorn. Okay, it's getting more annoying. Why? Yeah. So uh, this is in Iowa City. Officers were called to Brown Street for a report of an intoxicated male outside singing Jingle Bells through a bullhorn on October 7th. When officers arrived, they found the defendant had gone to his apartment. Officers then spoke with Aaron Holtz, who's 41, of Iowa City, and warned him about his intoxicated and disorderly behavior. Officers left, but were notified about 10 minutes later that Holtz was blasting music in his apartment. There's no word what music it was, but I'm sure it was pretty offensive as well. Court records say the music was loud, disturbing, and annoying, so maybe it was a, a, a recording of him slur singing Jingle Could be. Bells. Could be. Uh, to neighbors in the same building, Hulse was hostile with the officers and dared them to come inside. <laughs> that's, oh a, that's always a good way to go about it. Holtz was charged with a disorderly house. What? Yeah, I don't... I a don't... disorderly house? <laughs> that's what it says. Wow. The police came in and, this house is disorderly. <laughs> you need to clean up your... No, that's interesting. Yeah. Usually they go like, you know... Uh, public noise ordinance or nuisance or something, but your disorderly house. Wow. Yeah. That, that's what they go after, you know, for the house party, right? It gets out of control and you have to call the police. Maybe that's what that is. Yeah. I'm surprised it didn't say in here what time this happened because... It sounds like middle of the night type of thing. I No one will care at noon. Yeah. There have been so many times you're sitting at home and somebody's blasting music or just having a super loud... I, I used to live in this apartment complex and... 
you know, in the center of these complexes was this pool, and we could hear all sorts of conversations, people staying up at all hours of the of the night. And that was a situation in which I thought, you know, I could I could go to the window and just shout like, be quiet, go to bed, and nobody would know where that was coming from. Right. It started echoing around the building. I could get away with it scot-free, and I never took advantage of that. And I'm always, I've always regretted that. Um, but, yeah, th- there's always times when you're sitting home at 10 o'clock and you're like, oh, what's the, what's the hour? What, yeah. How do people know what hour it is? They, it seems like it, after 10 o'clock, you would think common sense would indicate maybe we turn down the music or maybe we stop shouting around, or shooting off whatever. Around my neighborhood, I think it's between like the city ordinances between sure. 7 a.m. and 10 p.m. Yeah. And that's where you got to keep it down. And so like mowing your lawn. Oh my you can do that at 7 a.m. because that's when the noise ordinance for the and evening, yet, right? There's so you, always people doing you, it earlier. If you do it at 7 a.m., people get mad because they're still sleeping on the weekends when people yeah. work in their yard. And uh, I always look out the window like, seriously, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. You yeah. can't do anything, but you're like, come on, just do it at 9. I mean, what are you doing right now? And what are you doing at 9? What's so important that you have to crack of dawn mow your lawn? Yeah. But, oh. You sit there and you, you kind of just hope that those lasers that you're shooting out of your eyes will penetrate, right. but never happens that no, way. They never do. <laughs> so I thought this one was pretty funny. I looked up the video for this. Um, well, I shouldn't say it was pretty funny, but you'll but understand you here. I, but you laughed. Sure. Right. So it might have been uh, So there are two race car drivers that were arrested after they got into a fist fight following a crash on an Indiana racetrack that ended with a police officer using a stun gun on one of the drivers. Wow. See, now what I don't understand is when you watch this video, the cars are kind of outfitted uh, such that it looks like they're meant to have some element of either demolition or to withstand, you know, impact. So you're not not impressed with the construction then? No, no, no. no. I was fine, but I'm thinking, well, let me finish the story here and then I'll I'll, I'll explain why. A video posted online from Saturday's race at Anderson Speedway shows one vehicle driving onto the second car's hood following the initial crash. The driver of the second car exits the vehicle and punches the other driver while he was still inside his car. An officer jogs onto the track and uses a stun gun on the driver standing outside the cars. Both men were eventually handcuffed and led away. The driver struck by the stun gun was identified Monday as 42-year-old Sean Cullen. He was ticketed for disorderly conduct. The other driver, 40-year-old Jeffrey Swinford, was charged with misdemeanor criminal recklessness. If you look at the video, it seems like it's some sort of an amateur uh, demolition derby anyway, because they, they kind of look like the cars from Mad Max where they've got some shielding and armor on the cars. And so to me, it seems like, well, yeah, isn't the audience paying to come and watch this car right on no, top of the other car? No. That, They're not but, decked out enough? No, those aren't demolition. I was trying to see what – I looked up the picture to see. Those are uh... – those are the kind of cars you would call more the regional 
racing series, not your national. The national when you, once you get the the bigger racing series, it looks more like a car. Okay. When you get the smaller ones, you get they call them sprint cars, where they have big wings on the top. Yeah. Then you have these other ones, are more modified approach to racing, and they'll, they'll have different body styles and things. So I get what you're saying. They they kind of look like maybe they have more armor on it yeah, or something. Yeah. But no, these are just race cars with weird wings on the back. It, it's weird. They have like plexiglass wings coming up the side of the trunk of the cars. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, it just looks. So like he, they wasn't, had a wreck. he wasn't supposed to drive up onto no, the hood of the no, other No, that car. was not the intention. I mean, because some, some racetracks do like a figure eight situation yeah. where they're yeah. intending you in the middle of the figure eight to crash. Yeah. Because, you know, there's enough cars and stuff. But uh, even even so, they do like trains where they pick three cars and chain the last two to the front end of the first car and then yeah. drag around to just cause accidents. This is different. This is actual race cars, but they're kind of an odd configuration. I'm guessing that the audience in attendance there that night loved every minute of oh, it. Oh, of course. You've got cars, you know, like riding on top of other cars. You yeah. have stun guns. That was oh. probably a wonderful night at the racetrack. Well, again, I, it just it goes to show you that it it, it helps to just exercise uh, goodwill yep. and just calm down, people. It's fine. Don't let the road rage get the better of you. I don't know that they're both in their forties, so maybe it says something about where they're at in life. I don't know, but again, please don't try anything like that on the road, and don't you know? Don't go around. Flashing obscene gestures or giving people dirty looks. Just understand we all make mistakes on the road. Just try to do better and uh, realize that you don't know what kind of day that person is having. So why not give them the benefit of a doubt, huh? All right. Anyway, when we return, we're going to get back to that topic that we were teasing earlier about uh, where Americans look to to solve the nation's challenges. And the results may surprise you. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back to the Matt Townsend Show. This is Jeff Simpson filling in for Dr. Matt. You know, many people today are divided on who should solve problems in our society. Only 23% of people think that the president is in the best position to start conversation on the challenges facing our society. Others think that pastors or celebrities should be the ones solving the problems. Well, Scott McConnell has done research on the subject and is here today to share with us what he's learned. He's an executive director of Lifeway Research, and he's here now to share some insight. Scott, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Jeff, glad to be with you today. This is such an interesting topic, and I, I've got the breakdown of the statistics here, and we can go into those. Uh, uh, so 23% think that the president is the one, uh, is in the best position to start the conversation on, on the challenges facing our society. That's that's a little surprising, only 23%. Yeah, it, and, and this is a question that we asked in the fall, right right before the election. So, you know, if people are, you know, picturing who the president was or is going to be, you know, they were either thinking President Obama or possibly many of them were thinking President Clinton. And and so really they were, you know, at an unknown period. Who is going to be that next president? And yet three-fourths of Americans aren't looking to that person to create, again, the question focused on healthy conversations on the challenges facing society. 
Yeah. And, you know, you bring up a good point. I guess it does depend on who the president is and the amount of support that that particular president has. So talk to us a little bit about some of the findings that you had here and and what were some of the what uh, sort of questions were asked and and how you came up with these results. Yeah, we we were surveying a a thousand Americans who who are representative. um, And so we're able to project this to the entire population. And we, we presented them with eight options of, of who, who's really in the best position to, to generate a healthy conversation. And, you know, there's a lot of assumptions right there in that question, um, you know, because, uh, uh, you know, there's an assumption that healthy conversations would help solve problems in our society. There, there, hmm. There's an assumption that we have challenges in our society. I think many of us kind of kind of put a check mark next to both of those. Um, and, and so that's why we think it's a, a relevant question. But we gave, gave eight different options. And um, the largest group of people uh, indicated the president. But again, that was just 23%. Uh, 11% mentioned pastors of local churches. And a similar number, 10%, said professors at universities. Mm. So if you think about it, you know, those top three kind of take government, religion, uh, you know, our, our educational institutions, you know, so those are some that we would assume would be kind of toward the top. You know, we're already down to less than one out of 10 people as we go to the next couple options, uh, members of the media, business leaders, and, and elected members of Congress. Um, so, you know, you throw business in there, you throw media in there. I mean, these are the major institutions of our society. And yeah. And and very few people picking any one of them as being able to create a conversation. And I'm actually, I'm looking at these numbers and listening to what you just shared. I'm, I guess I'm a little surprised that there's only the 1% difference between uh, pastors of local churches and professors at universities. I'm surprised to hear that, you know, just as many people would listen to their uh, professor as the, as the leader of their local church or vice versa, I guess. Yeah, I mean, we're in a society that definitely values education. Um, you know, granted, you know, once you're past that, um, you know, maybe you're not thinking back to professors, and half of Americans have not uh, attended university, and so they wouldn't necessarily be picturing that. Um, but again, we value them. We look up to, to education and, and knowledge and, and having constructs for, for uh, you know, thinking through things, and, uh, you know, to have a healthy conversation, you know, there's got to be some objectivity to it. And you would think that, uh, you know, a professor uh, w- could, could come at it with, with objectivity or, uh, and, and not be biased. And, and e- even pastors, you know, might come at it from a religious angle, but at least, you know, they, they may not be as involved in, in some of the, the, the power or political dynamics that might be, you know, causing some of the problems. And so, you know, kind of fascinating that there's kind of not that automatic reaction. And, and the, the last couple of options we gave people, um, you, you know, hit probably the, the last area of society that we've not mentioned, which is uh, really our entertainment. And so we mentioned professional sports players and musicians, and, and they're down at 1% or less than 1%. And, hmm. you know, we've heard many of them... Uh, you know, speaking up over the last few years and taking a stand and and really saying, hey, we've got to, you know, we've got to be solving some of these problems in our society. And yet when we ask who can best generate a healthy conversation, 99 percent of Americans are saying it's not them. 
Which is interesting because it seems like we hear from them the most. And obviously they have a much bigger platform than some of these other people on the on the poll, like uh, university professors or even uh, pastors of local churches. But so you mentioned education is it. The results of this showed that education is important to a lot of people, obviously. But what else do you think this says about society, the results that you found in this poll? And, you, you know, I'm going to step into a, a little bit of speculation here, but as we look at other survey questions that we've asked over time, we know that Americans are very individualistic. Um, and, you know, that, that old adage of pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps, um, you know, we want to accomplish things on our own. And while that's, been, that's served America very well uh, in terms of inventing things and creativity and music and the arts, um, you know, the cost of individualism is that doing things together in America is really hard. And mm. because you have to have somebody lead you to do things together. You have to listen instead of just telling what you think to do things together. And, and as Americans, we struggle with that. And we don't have very many settings where healthy conversation occurs today. And when we think about social media, uh, you know, typically we're saying what we think, we're retweeting what we think, we're, uh, you know, we're liking what we already agree with, and we're not surrounding ourselves with the other side of an issue and the people who might believe the other side of an issue. And, you know, that keeps us really distanced from landing on solutions. Yeah. Hey, and again, I'm I am a little surprised about the 20 percent, 23 percent for president of the United States. Say what you will about President Trump. But it seems like some of these issues would really have to start at that level with the president and especially in order to make any sort of a, a difference. And uh, yes and no. I mean, if we think back to our, our uh, you know, our civics classes, our, our government classes in, in school, uh, you know, we, we learned that a lot of solutions really ought to be coming out of the legislature and the Congress, and, and that the president's job is to execute those things and, and, to, and to negotiate things with other countries. And yet we've looked to our presidential candidates to, for, for decades now to be the ones saying the new directions we should go. And instead of instead of those who actually write those laws, hmm. and it, it's kind of a fascinating uh, twist, um, kind of within the civics of, of of how our government operates. That um, obviously, if we weren't looking for it, those candidates wouldn't be doing that. And and yet, you know, we see them putting out, you know, talking about legislation changes. And and now now, of course, once you're in office, you can be doing executive orders. And, and so we see a, a lot of trying to solve things as, as a single person. And I think, you know, this survey question kind of says the position itself is not what I'm looking to to create a healthy conversation to, 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 to face these challenges. It, it, it's got to be more than the position. Yeah. So 33 percent said none of these um, and I'm, I'm curious to know why you think 33 percent said that and if if none of these, then I wonder where they're looking to for conversation starters for these issues. You know, definitely some of that comes into uh, what we've already mentioned of, 
you know, there's a lack of healthy conversations today. So I think many of those people in that third are really, they can't even imagine where it would come from, um, who could foster that. Um, but I think there's also some pushback that anybody should automatically, based on either their position or the platform they've, they've created. I mean, some of these musicians, uh, sports players have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people following them on social media. Right. And, 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 and they're saying, you know, even if you've got a bunch of followers who like you, that doesn't automatically make you good at, at bringing people together and healing divides. And I, I think in, you know, kind of what's unsaid here is that that's something you have to earn. And, you know, until we actually have people's names next to this, this kind of a topic, will we know whether somebody's actually earned the right to do that? And, you know, as we think about who can, um, it, it's so easy for us to agree on the problems. Um, you know, there's some things we may not agree with on that side of things, but most of us would agree on a lot of the problems our society faces. The, the disagreement comes in how, in how to solve it. Um, we have very different views on that. And, and, and so good dialogue must occur for that. You know, somebody who's good at listening, somebody who's walked in, in another person's shoes, somebody with a track record of solving problems, um, you know, those are the kinds of things that, that likely are what people are, are looking for. And they're saying, you know, just because somebody is a professor, just because somebody has studied this or has preached on it or has, you know, has given speeches on it as they've tried to get elected or they've, you know, announced it on the evening news, you know, that doesn't mean they're good at, at, at bringing people together, at being a peacemaker. And um, so, you know, in, in some respects that, uh, you know, the heroes that, that we kind of need when it comes to, to diplomacy and comes to um, peacemaking in America, um, you know, there, there's not a, a one-size-fits-all. I think, I think there's, there are individuals who can fill that role today, but it's not going to be something that automatically occurs because, uh, you know, they have a position on a basketball team or, you know, they're behind the mic um, as, as part of the media. Yeah, I, I was hoping we could talk a little bit more about that because you mentioned earning it, you know, earning that right to be the authority on, on a, any given topic. Is it, I mean... Do we get more education? Is it the amount of money that we donate? How do we earn that right? You know, I mean, there's there several options, you know, and, and today people tend to grow their platform, um, you know, by having, uh, you know, statements that people want to quote. And, and so sometimes those are outlandish, sometimes those are funny. Um, and, and yet when we think about solving problems, uh, you know, is that, you know, there, there are certain options there. It could be the same thing. Is it, is it, is it the person who can be the, you know, the, have the most outlandish ideas, uh, the, thing, the people who make us laugh? Um, I don't think so. I, you know, is it the people who are the most educated? Um, you know, in many respects, I see uh, America less interested in facts than we probably ever have been. Um, and, and so I, it doesn't appear that Americans are looking to the most educated um, you know, person who's figured out the most facts on something. Um, so it really has to come in another space. And I think it's, uh, it, you know, there's, do there's definitely some skills that we don't run into often in our society, but it's the skills of creating a conversation. 
And, uh, you know, there are settings where we listen in on those conversations, you know, you know, like, you know, like podcasts, like radio broadcasts, um, talk shows on TV. Um, but there's not a lot of settings where, you know, we as Americans actually participate in conversations with, with multiple people who may not share our views. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we spoke with our last guest about the Electoral College and, and uh, how people are voting today and what ge- how geography plays a part in that. I'm curious to know because there's so many different opinions, obviously, especially over who should be running our country. So many different opinions. How do we, how do we try to bridge the gap of those opinions so that people can become more unified with uh, who, uh, as far as their leaders go? How do we get these numbers higher, I guess, or how do we get them where they need to be? You know, I, I think if, if there's not going to be one type of person who can lead us toward good conversations, then, you know, do we turn back to this thing that we were good at in the first place, which is kind of looking to ourselves? And, uh, you know, as uh, you know, as an evangelical research firm, you know, that doesn't sound real comfortable to me to say that. Um, yeah. But, you know, can each of us individually uh, start to value those kinds of conversations and try to foster them? Um, if if there's not you know an automatic somebody who can lead us there can can each of us try you know can can be a, a place you know that, that we can turn and so you know some of those things we we grew up hearing about you know there's certain topics that are taboo at the dinner table uh, you know politics sex and religion right um, you know well maybe we need to be willing to talk about the tough things in our society at the dinner table and invite some of our neighbors to the dinner table with us. And, you know, yes, there's got to be some ways that we, we don't go too far in the things we say that we're alienating the people we're, we're with, um, but really valuing hearing people more so than always trying to value the position. And, uh, you know, that's, that's a different kind of conversation to, to I think, encourage in our society. Um, but, you know, we see so many signs that, again, we're, uh, we're not wanting to do things together. We're not wanting to have a leader. Uh, you know, even the statistics of how many people are, are no longer a member of a political party. They're independent. Uh, you know, it's another sign that we don't want to, uh, you know, follow an institution or follow uh, an individual leader in what we think. Um, you know, if, if we're going to have consensus to solve a, an individual problem, uh, there's got to be conversations going on there. And how? Just as we wrap up, how do you how do you feel like we can have those conversations? Where how do we get to the point where we can develop a little thicker skin and be okay talking about some of these issues that maybe divide us, but that if if we can come together, maybe we can bridge the gap a little more. How do we get to that point? You know, the, I think it takes intentionality, and um, you, you know. I, Ultimately, if we already loved some people who were different than us, it would be easier. And, and so, you know, those of us who, who do depend on our faith uh, can, uh, you know, can, can tap into uh, to that, hopefully, to, to have some love for some people who are not like us. Um, but we can also think of, of the practical things of, you know, who you're following on, on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if they're all people like you, you know, branch out a little bit and listen to some other voices who are, 
of a different uh, social class than you, a different ethnicity than you, have a different political position than you, just to listen. And yes, it'll make you mad some days, but you, you know, when, when we hear some of the passion behind why they think some of the things they think, um, you know, it's hard to deny that feeling and, and whatever has triggered them to feel that way, um, even though we may not like the position itself they have. Scott, that is wonderful insight. And thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, speaking with you here on the Matt Townsend Show this morning. His name is Scott McConnell, and he's the executive director of LifeWay Research. He has researched the needs and preferences of church leaders and other leaders for LifeWay Christian Resources for over 20 years. And uh, he was speaking to us today about how leaders can solve today's challenges and sharing with us some results on uh, some surprising results on where people are looking to to uh, solve their challenges or leaders that they're looking to to solve their challenges anyway his name is scott mcconnell and thanks again when we return we're going to be doing some more empty news and also speaking with mckenna baus mckenna baus is in the house this is the matt townsend show Welcome back to the sa- or welcome back to the Matt Townsend show. That sound means that uh, it's time for a little more empty news here on the Matt Townsend show. And uh, this one's interesting and it's kind of timely because we are approaching Thanksgiving. We don't want to forget Thanksgiving even though so many stores do. Um, why would you forget Thanksgiving? Well, because you uh, you go into the stores now and it's already Christmas time. And Halloween hasn't even happened yet. Well, I mean, what decorations would you go... What would you purchase for Thanksgiving other than food? Exactly. So, I mean, you can have your seasonal aisle in aisle Christmas, and you have your over in the frozen food, you have your turkey celebration. It's just unfortunate because, yeah, there is not much that you can purchase other than just food for Thanksgiving. Anyway, that uh, wasn't the point of this uh, MT news story, (laughs) but uh, it has to do with turkeys. Mm. The FAA says it will check to see whether any laws or regulations were broken when a low-flying pilot dropped live turkeys onto an Arkansas festival over the weekend. I'm like, did you mean FDA? And we were talking food here, but no, No. they're throwing turkeys out of airplanes. (laughs) Go ahead. The annual Yellville Turkey, uh, Yellville Turkey Trot in northern Arkansas has included a turkey drop for more than five decades. And no one said a word about it. Yeah, so I'm surprised it's an issue now. So sponsors in recent years have distanced themselves from the practice. (laughs) Yeah. Several birds were dropped Saturday and then chased by festival goers. Yay! Sounds like good, clean fun, right? We're just tormenting the birds at this point. Local animal rights activist uh, Rose Hilliard has filed a formal complaint with the sheriff. She alleges the pilot terrorized the birds and violated state laws against cr- uh, animal cruelty and yeah. a- animal abandonment. It it seems like uh, terrorized seems like a strong word, but wouldn't you be wouldn't you feel terrorized if you were being dropped from an airplane and then chased chased by the crowd? Yeah, a little bit. Now, it doesn't say whether they're chasing them with like a big fork and a knife or anything like that. Probably not. Uh, Festival organizers say they've received similar complaints as they have in past years from animal activists. The FAA hasn't intervened in past years because the birds aren't considered projectiles. 
<laughs> Are they? Fr- wow. Well, they're not frozen. Yeah, so they're not projectiles. Yeah, they don't fly, of course. True. So I could see why that would be considered cruel. Yeah. How high up are they? I guess it doesn't matter. You're dropping them out of well, an airplane. Well, it just said low flying. Let me see if it... Uh, but still, it's an, it said it's, the... it's an airplane, so you're off the ground yeah. too far for it to probably be healthy for the bird. Okay. As the legs aren't really probably as strong as they need to be to withstand any sort of yeah. drop from any sort of height. I'll say I'm a little more sympathetic with the animals in this situation and more understanding of where the animal rights activists are coming from. What I take issue with is, as you know, I I lived in Seattle for a time. Mm. There were people that would um, that would uh, they would not agree with the fish handlers at Pike's oh, Place Market where, where they're tossing tossing fish, fish yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of as a show for the people there to yeah. buy fish. Yeah. Uh, the fish are dead, right. I might add. No big deal. So there's no way that those fish could be terrorized. Right. But They'd people still took yeah. issue with that. I and don't get it. Every time you see a, a story about Seattle, they run down there and get some video footage of that. Yeah, Just, it's kind of iconic. This is something they do. They chuck fish around, and I mean, right? Yeah, I don't know. Sometimes the the animal rights stuff can go a little far, but this one chucking a bird out of an yeah, airplane it seems a little cruel, and then it hits the ground, <laughs> and so you have the shock of hitting the ground, and then the carnival whatever goers start chasing the bird around. Yeah, the bird isn't having fun at this point. No. No. And I will I will remind you, WKRP, the TV show from the 70s, early yes, 80s, they yeah. had an episode where they had a radio stunt where they were throwing, I guess, turkeys out of a helicopter or off a building or something. It didn't go well. There hmm. were, there, birds did not end up in a, in a good position once that uh, radio stunt was over, and the show talked about the fallout from that. So um, just caution you there. It's a... Uh, it's something that's been done before, so you can you can see the outcome. So, yeah. Before you uh, practice any acts of barbarism when it comes to turkeys, make sure that they're cooked. Don't throw live turkeys out of an airplane. That's just mean. Anyway, when we return, we're going to be speaking with McKenna Bow. She's in the house to talk to us about uh, whether or not you can take a friendship break from a relationship. When we return, this is the Matt Townsend Show. Give it up now for the House of Bows. Welcome to her house. She is looking about. She is here to break down things you didn't know now. McKenna Bouse is in the house, and I am really excited to talk about what you've brought in uh, with us or for us today. Because, you know, people always say, well, let's just be friends when they're breaking up. And first of all, I don't know if that's possible. And secondly, is it possible to take a friendship break from the relationship and then come back? How do you do that? Yeah, so there's um, a lot of reasons why it might be a good idea to do. It's not something that I think we've usually, we think about. We think about relationships. Sometimes people are like, I'm on a, you know, we're on a break, you know, for those Friends fans out there, you know, <laughs> we were on a break. Um, but the the interesting thing is, is that by taking that step back, it sometimes gives you time to sort of 
re, you know, regroup to figure out who you are without this person, be able to let go of things that might be rubbing you the wrong way so you can sh- save the friendship in the long run yeah. before you have some kind of big fallout. Now, do you still continue to spend time with each other as friends taking this friendship break? So this friendship break um, – no, like this is like, you know, you and just like your good pals. You, I mean, you might have like very minimal contact, like happy birthday, but you're not hanging out anymore. Okay. You're not doing any of that stuff. But then once you are, you know, you've taken that time, you feel more prepared to deal with this person again. Yeah. Then, you know, you reestablish contact, start hanging out again and pick up sort of where you left off. Okay. Interesting. Because... Yeah, I don't think that would work for me. When I was I was probably 10 or 11, I told my mom I wanted to take a month off of my piano lessons, and I never came back. Yeah, well, and that's an important thing to remember, is that when you take a break, you know, it may not work out. It may not be something that you end up coming back to, but that can be okay. Because if they aren't a person that you miss... During that time, if it's just you realize, you know, hey, we were fighting more than we were enjoying hanging out and you realize I don't want to deal with that stress again, then that's fine. It can be an easier way to step back from these kind of yeah. toxic friendships. Yeah. And so there's a few tips to okay. making one of these breaks work, because if you go up to your friend, you're like, hey, um, our friendship want to take a break might not go over that well. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So. You sort of handle it, I mean, similarly to how you would handle a breakup that you're trying to, like, keep on good terms. Okay, okay. So be kind. Be kind. Don't go in saying, hey, X, X, and X that you're doing are really bothering me, and that's why I need a break. That's Make it more about, you know, hey, me as a person, I need some time. Sure. You know, be kind. Okay. Um, Talk it out. You know, make sure you have a good discussion about it. Um. Or, you know, sometimes another option is just don't even make it official. Just let things fade and you in your own mind have the intention, you know, I'm going to reestablish contact in a while. Yeah. Um, Not ghosting. Don't drop off the face of the planet. Okay. But ease back, you know, little by little. Remember why you're doing it um, in the sense of you're doing it to save the friendship, not I don't want to talk to you. I'm going to give you the silent treatment. Yeah, yeah. Focus on the positives and then... Make sure to take some time to get some perspective first. Make sure that you've thought it through. You've taken a breather before you decide, hey, we're going to go on a friendship break. It's always good to take a nice, long, deep breath for anything in life. I full-heartedly agree. Well, uh, I'll tell you, I don't know if you've seen the movie The Cable Guy, but it didn't work out so well in that situation. But when Matthew Broderick told Jim Carrey's uh, cable guy character, I don't want to be your friend anymore, he wasn't taking a break. He just didn't want to have anything to do with him. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. McKenna Baus, you've done it again. Thank you so much for being in the house. And uh, (laughs) we look forward to you blowing our minds again on Monday. My pleasure. When we come back, we've got screen cleaning. It's our 21st episode, and it's a good one. You're not going to want to miss it when we return. This is The Matt Townsend Show. This is a show as vast as space and as timeless as a 60-minute segment will allow. It is programmed between the darkness of The Matt Townsend Show and the light of BYU Sports Nation. And it lies between the pit of Jeff Simpson's stomach 
and the summit of his appetite. It is a show which we call Screen Cleaning. Ooh. I prom- I told you this was going to be a great show. I bet you're intrigued. I bet your interest is peaked. Today is really our big Halloween show that we've been really excited for and working toward. Cole and I have got a great segment coming up in which we're going to share our horror anthology mixed tapes. It's probably something you've never, ever heard of. But I'm not going to tell you much more than that because you've got to tune in to find out what it's all about. But you're not going to want to miss it because we've got some great picks for uh, for shows that you can watch this Halloween when you don't really have a ton of time. And uh, in just a minute here, we're also going to be speaking with Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. There's a new movie, what's newish movie, called Happy Death Day. We're going to talk about that. But more importantly, we're going to talk about horror movies in general And uh, why they're still so prevalent today. We're going to share our reasons for why we think that is. But uh, first, I want to give you a a couple of really good pieces of entertainment news that we've already shared on the Matt Townsend Show. But I'm going to share them again because I'm hoping Cole can solve this little dilemma that I've got. A dilemma, you say? So, Cole, as you know, I'm a huge Dodgers fan. I wouldn't have guessed. (laughs) And today, or tonight I should say, is Game 3 of the World Series. I've heard. Of which my Dodgers are a part. Mm -hmm. They're tied. No dilemma so far. With the Houston Astros, one game to one game, right? Mm -hmm. Now they're in Houston. Starts at 5 p.m. Pacific time, 8 p.m. Eastern time. Away from Vince Scully, sadly. Yes, unfortunately. So, so far, no problem, right? Well, the other bit of... Great entertainment news is that Stranger Things Season 2 is now available to stream on Netflix. Technically, as of last night. Really? At midnight. Oh. I saw it show up. Well, some of us with kids are not awake at that hour. Mm. (laughs) Unless you're my wife. Poor Janelle. Anyway, so I just don't know what to do because I finally have time to watch Stranger Things and it's now available But it's Game 3 of the World Series, and the Dodgers have not been in the World Series in my lifetime. They have, but I was five years old at the time, so I don't really remember. See, the only dedicated solution would have been to stay up to midnight last night, watch the entire season, come into work at 7, and then stay up to watch the Dodgers tonight. If you were a true dedicated Dodgers and Stranger Things fan... That, well, Jeff, is what you would have done. Then I guess I'm not a true dedicated Dodgers fan or Stranger Things fan because as much as I love those two things, I really love my sleep. Okay. And they're there. I mean, the Dodgers game will be on. Stranger I can Things ain't going away. It's going to be soon. there forever. Anyway, so I guess in a way you kind of gave me an option that I would never, ever follow. And if time travel were an option, as is quite possible in the Twilight Zone, you could just go back and remedy Ooh. that situation. Yes, and we and we may or may not be talking about time travel in a later segment. But first, we want to speak with our good friend Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. Parent Previews is all about helping parents make informed decisions on what to show their, their families. And uh, we've always appreciated him here on Screen Cleaning and on the Matt Townsend, Townsend Show. Rod Gustafson, it's been a while, but you're back. How are you doing? I am back. I'm doing good. I'm I'm here to be the 
the Halloween wet blanket, as we so often are at Parent Previews. Although not a totally wet blanket, I promise. There'll be some warm spots here. So now, Rod, I did see Happy Death Day as well, and I know you did. And what I heard from you basically was that you couldn't necessarily recommend it for families, but that you kind of enjoyed it. Yeah, and these guys know how to make, and when I say these guys, it's from, uh, oh, now the name has escaped me. Help me, Jeff. Blumhouse. Um, Blumhouse? Yeah, is it Blum or Blumhouse? Thank you. These guys know how to make a good movie on a budget. I mean, $5 million to make this film, and uh, it's got great timing, and it actually, even though it's a total ripoff of Groundhog Day, they're smart enough to admit that in the movie if you if you wait to the very end. Yeah. And, uh, and it really, I, I thought it worked quite well. I thought it came together quite well, and, and actually is probably the most profitable movie on the screen in the last six months. You know, considering just how many of these time loop movies are coming out lately— I've mm-hmm. actually been surprised at the quality of some of them. You know, I I would always still place uh, Groundhog Day as my number one time loop movie. Number two, I would place the Tom Cruise uh, Edge of Tomorrow film. Yes. That I just enjoyed that so much. I felt I don't think I've ever been to a movie before where I felt like I was playing a video game. You know, mm-hmm. in a video game, you're you're inching your way toward the last bad guy, learning from your mistakes. You keep getting killed, and so you're having to start over again. And that's essentially all that Edge of Tomorrow was, and it was just a blast. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, exactly. I think I think the time loop thing. Um, you know, when we saw it in Groundhog Day, it was such a unique idea. But I think directors just can't resist now coming back to that. Hopefully we won't get too many of these. I don't know how long <laughs> they're going to be able to reinvent it. But it really it appeals to so many uh, emotions that we as humans have where you wish you could just keep doing it over until you get it right. You know, right. we only get one chance usually at most things. And and so I think that's part of the fun of it. Yeah. And, you know, you you mentioned one of the reasons why perhaps horror movies are still so prevalent today, because they can be made with a dime and the returns mm-hmm. are insane. But uh, I was hoping that you and I could share our our ideas for why we think horror movies are still so prevalent today. And, you know, mine are a little, I'll just say creative, but uh, my my first reason for why horror films are still so prevalent today is just because, and aside from the fact that they make a lot of money and, you know, what else are you going to put out in October besides a horror movie? Mm-hmm. Um, yes. There are just no new ideas. And so you get these same reboots hashed over again and again and again. That's why I, I have to tip my hat to um, Happy Death Day. It's not a new idea, but it is a new twist on an idea that was, you know, somewhat entertaining. So I just think that there are no new ideas and horror films they see those as an easy cash grab, so why not just take those and rehash them and put them out again and again as long as people are willing to pay for them? I, yeah, I think you have a point there. Um, uh, you know, for guys like us who watch movies for a living, so to speak, after you've done this over three decades, the repetition becomes a bit much, but the, the typical 
horror movie audience is a fairly narrow range. It usually runs from about 15 years old, often young people that shouldn't even be getting into those R-rated movies and moving up to about 25 or 30. It's a pretty narrow window. So basically every 10 years, you've you've got a new audience. But, uh, you know, I think what brings people back to them over and over, one of many things is that a good horror movie identifies and every day, it could be an object, it could be an experience that all of us have, it could be something as simple as, who knows, brushing your teeth and turning it into something really creepy. And I think that's something that people, those are the movies, at least the work for me, that bring people back to them. Yeah. I think there's a desire for us as moviegoers to laugh. And if you go to any scary movie... The first thing that people do, especially if they're in an audience with other moviegoers <laughs> surrounding them, the first thing people do after they get scared or after they fall for a jump scare is they start to laugh. Maybe they're laughing at themselves for being scared and getting caught, or maybe they just laugh to cut the tension that comes from being scared. But I, I think that we, we go see these films because we love to laugh. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, that laugh thing, okay, I'm going to get a little psychological on you, on you now, because having done parent previews for so many years, I've read tons of studies. One of the things that people get from watching horror is it allows them to develop a sense of control. So where they're in a what they know is a, an unreal situation, they're sitting in a theater, but it allows us to practice control. So laughing allows us to practice our control mechanism of becoming scared. And it, and it gives us a way to psychologically distance us from what we're seeing on the screen. And that's that's a payoff for us. Yeah. So we might as well just be saying, oh, this is just a movie. It's not real. It's not real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Okay. Uh, and I'm I'm going to suggest one other reason why horror movies are still so prevalent today. I think... And this is maybe a little darker than my other two reasons. I think there's something in us that wants to misbehave just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think I think for a lot of people, I feel this way sometimes, depending on the movie, maybe I'm I'm being a little bad by going and watching these films about people being killed one by one, you know? And I, I think for some reason since we all spend so much of our time trying to be so good, there's a small part of us that maybe wants to rebel and wants to be a little bad, and maybe this is one of the outlets that we choose for that. What do you think Did about you know that? Did there was, you there was a study in 1995 uh, done about that, and they found that what you're describing was exclusive to the 220 adolescents that they that they studied, it was exclusive to the males. They were the only ones identified with that. Yes, yes, (laughs) which was really interesting. So I'm going to flip it over and I'll tell you why Um, females will often come to horror movies. Um, They will often have uh, empathy for the victim. And uh, and they receive a high, they tend to prefer horror movies, I mean, and this is 90% of them, where the victim comes out, you know, the hero, and he or she makes it to the end of the movie, and they're holding the bloodied axe after they've killed the bad guy or whatever. And for women, there's the payoff there where they've overcome fear. 
And so that's what will bring them back to movies as opposed uh, back to these movies, as opposed to men who sometimes very darkly identify with the killer, which isn't a good thing always. Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so but... don't, don't worry, Jeff, we can get you in for some <laughs> little psychological counseling. You're on a good campus there. You can, you can go find someone. Well, maybe Dr. Matt Townsend can help me. <laughs> That's it. Dr. Matt's the guy. <laughs> you know, and as long as, as long as, uh, these movies keep making money there, we're going to still see these horror films being released year after year, month after month. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, going back to Happy Death Day, I heard the budget on that was $5 million. And right now it's made over $42 million. And which, you know, $42 million, you think, well, gee, that's not much. Blade Runner made $76 million, But Blade Runner cost $150 million to make. Yeah. And so when you've got a $5 million movie that can return what's called over eight times profits, oh, you bet there's going to be more. Yeah, and another release from that same production company, Get Out, earlier mm-hmm. in the year. $4 million, I think, to make, and it made well over yeah. $100 million. So that pretty much uh, launched the career of its director, Jordan Peele, who's primarily known for comedy. Comedy. Interestingly yeah. enough. Yeah, yeah, it, it really is. And, and that's the – so the horror movie genre is far from being my favorite. But every now and then I will see one of these films. At the very least, I appreciate uh, the filmmaking skills. And sometimes I even appreciate the chills. There's a couple I've seen over the years that I think, yeah, okay, that was really good. Well, Rod, we really appreciate your insight on this topic, and uh, thank you for helping me identify that maybe I have a problem that needs to be taken care of. And uh, Don't, I'm, don't uh, worry, Jeff. With a little time and patience, that can be overcome. Oh. <laughs> you just need to just watch My Little Pony a few more times. You'll be okay. <laughs> oh, well, according to my wife, I should not watch My Little Pony, but I guess that's a different <laughs> discussion for a different day. His name is Rod Gustafson from Parent Previews. You can uh, look up his podcast, Parent the Parent Previews podcast, as well as go to his website, parentpreviews.com, to help you make more informed decisions on what to show your families. When we return, Cole and I are going to be talking about horror anthology mixed tapes. Super excited. When we return, this is Screen Cleaning. This is a 90-second movie review for the film Only the Brave on BYU Radio. Only the Brave is the story of the Granite Mountain Hotshots from Prescott, Arizona. This group of 20 men fought many fires and became hotshots in 2008. You may have heard of this group of firefighters when they were fighting the Yarnell Hill Fire in 2013. The filmmakers of Only the Brave did a masterful job with this movie, and while not everything may be historically accurate, it does make you realize the danger firefighters face every time they are called out. Josh Brolin plays Eric Marsh, the supervisor of the Granite Mountain Hotshots, and he plays the part very well. Miles Teller, Jennifer Conley, Taylor Kitsch, and others all add to the group of actors that make up the great cast of Only the Brave. They each did a great job of representing the people they were playing on screen. There is a point where the film begins to drag, and the filmmakers may have put too much into the final product, but there is a reason for it. They wanted to make the audience connect with these firefighters. Despite the length, they did succeed at making that connection. I felt both sad and honored as I walked out of the theater after the film. If you're thinking of taking kids to this movie, you'll want to know that there are some profanities used as well as implied drug use. Sexuality is talked about and indicated by some situations, plus a man moons the camera. A truck rolls over and people are seen in dangerous situations, and death is a major theme of the story. 
Only the Brave is rated PG-13, and I am giving it a B-plus grade. Thank you for listening. I'm Sean O'Neill. This has been a 90-second movie review on BYU Radio. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning here on the Matt Townsend Show. I've got Cole Wissinger here with me. And since it is Halloween, we thought we would do something kind of different. I remember when I was growing up trying to watch my shows on TV when they aired, because that was kind of the option, unless you wanted to tape them. We only had two TVs, and I was the youngest in the family, so I was pretty low on the totem pole as far as uh, you know, who gets to watch the, the TV when. I can't relate. Yeah, you're the you know, only, only child, child. right? <laughs> but one thing I would do from time to time is I would take a VHS tape, put it in the VCR. Some of you listening might not understand anything of what I'm saying right now. Um, they are listening to a radio right now. That is so true. bygone eras of media <laughs> transfer are not past that. Yeah. So you'd put the the video in the VCR, and you could program it to pre. You could uh, program it to record a program ahead of time. So you would pre-record a program, and if you really wanted that tape to have legs to go the distance, you wanted to get as much use of that tape as possible. You could change the settings on the tape. So there was standard play, which meant you had two hours on the tape. There was extended or uh, let's see, long play, which was LP. For four hours on the tape and then extended play, you could record up to six hours of content on that video. And that's what I was always used to. And so imagine my horror when I was trying to tape a Steelers game one Sunday (gasps) so that I could watch it the next day. Yeah. um, Because we were busy at church. Uh, And I realized that it was possible to change those settings for the first time. And I got the first two hours of it uh, and was absolutely bewildered why I didn't get the rest. I figured out those settings pretty fast. Now, what I will say is that... Though, the more time you add onto that tape, it decreases the quality of the picture right. just a little bit, okay? So, uh, Cole and I are going to do something really interesting today. We realize that not a lot of people have time to sit down and watch hours and hours and hours of Halloween movies and so, Halloween specials. Right, but maybe you have time to watch like little short films because there are so many out there to choose from. We wanted to make a mixed tape. So you might have a Steelers game and an episode of Friends on your tape. I that might have an ep- like an old movie from Turner Classic Movies and an episode of The Simpsons on my tape. Okay? Right. So we're going to share with you our anthology horror film or TV show uh, mixed tapes. So here's what right. you would find on an anthology mixed videotape uh, from Cole and from me. And, Cole, I'm going to let you start off with your first choice of what would be on your anthology horror film slash TV show mixtape. All right, Jeff. My first entry submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society is The Tale of Bigfoot Ridge from Are You Afraid of the Dark as my first entry. I don't think I've seen this one. So... Are You Afraid of the Dark had its original run for about three seasons, and then it came back in about 99, 2000-ish, and I was ready for this. Whenever it came (laughs) back, I watched every single episode as it happened. Yeah. Um, And this particular episode came out and starred an also Nickelodeon 90s alum, Brooke Nevin, from Animorphs. 
And Another show I'm not familiar it with. It also had Hayden Christensen, okay. who would later be in the Star Wars movies, but this was before that. Uh, and this is the tale of them going to the backside of a snowboarding mountain. It tells the story of two kids without fear because they're extreme sports kids um, that find out that fear can be in the dark. Ooh. It's fun. You know, when I was saying that I would try to uh, go watch a show and I would be the lowest on the totem pole Saturday night, I remember going to trying to go to a friend's house anywhere where I could tune in at 930 or whenever it was to watch an episode of the original series of Are You Afraid of the Dark? That was one of my favorite shows. It's sadly not on my tape. Um, I do have some favorites. As as the little bit younger of the two millennials of us, I figured that I wanted to get the the kids' entry I'm I'm so glad that you brought it up because it deserves to be on the tape for sure. Uh, So my first pick, and I'm going from the shortest to the longest, my first pick is from The Simpsons Treehouse of Horror number four, which was season five, episode five. And this is going to make sense here in a minute why I chose this particular segment. It is called simply The School Bus. And it's basically a spoof of terror at 20,000 feet from the Twilight Zone. Right. Where Bart is on a school bus and he is convinced that he sees this little gremlin on the side of the bus tearing it apart piece by piece. Of course, nobody believes him. And uh, my favorite, this has one of the best Simpsons lines ever. So for some reason, the principal of the school is on the school bus, Principal Skinner, and he hears that some kid is talking about how there's a monster on the side of the bus. And he comes up and says, now I've gotten word that a child is using his imagination and I've come to put a stop to it. That (laughs) is hilarious. So check it out. It's only seven minutes long. So funny. Simpsons Treehouse of Horror 4. That's my first pick. All right. I'll get to my two short ones as well. There was okay. a television show, again, that I <laughs> that I watched quite a bit of. Uh, I watched it when it came to the sci-fi channel that was called Beyond Belief, Fact or Fiction. Interesting. Starring okay. Jonathan Frakes of Star Trek fame. <laughs> Aww. So Jonathan Frakes hosted this show and would kind of give you a preamble to the two to the uh, series of stories that they would tell during the course of the half hour episode. Um, and at the twist that this one brought to the table was that at the end of the episode, he would ask you, all right, which ones were fact and which Ooh. ones were fiction? And you got to guess after hearing the dramatized stories, which ones you thought were true. So I bring to the table one fact and one fiction story. Okay. Uh, the first was called... The Mirror of Truth, which tells the story of a very vain woman that goes in to get a makeup done. Uh, she thinks that she kind of botched the makeup. She gets up. She's very angry. She's just kind of a, a seedy lady in the in general, just not not very nice. And the the makeup person curses her. Um, Interesting. And the the stunning part of this episode was whenever she calls in a cosmetologist or a and a plastic surgeon, all kinds of people, um, and they look at her and they don't see anything wrong with her. But when she looks in the mirror of truth, okay, it's very picture of Dorian Grayish. Like she sees all the the evils that are inside of her heart yeah. manifest on her face, and the makeup is just it's. It's shocking when you okay. first see her in that mirror. All right. So that's the first one. Okay. And is I it get fact to guess, or is right? it fiction? Yeah. And then the other one was actually called The Caller, where you have a radio station. Uh, oh. The radio guy is kind of 
also not a savory individual. He's pretty mean to all of his callers. Uh, But one night, lightning strikes the radio tower, and then he gets a caller that he can't hang up on. And it's the voice of his, we soon find out, passed away young son that he never visited and that, that he was neglectful towards. And that young son haunts this radio DJ to okay. madness. Wow. This sounds like a, a fun show. Oh, it was. <laughs> um, I'm going to say that the first one was the true story and the second one was the fiction. Correct, Jeffrey. Yes! And that's the game we got to play with five stories per episode. That's cool. It's just it's a great show. And what where what channel did this air on or what station was Originally it? I think it was CBS or one of their kind of things. Okay. Uh, but it got around to sci fi by the early two thousands and that's where that I was out. watching it. Okay. So my number two uh is it's interesting because there are several versions of this segment. This one is from Twilight Zone. The movie. Okay. And it is the segment Nightmare at 20,000 Feet. So again, and this is a remake of the one that aired on the Twilight Zone, the TV show, which was based on a short story by Richard Matheson, who is my one of my favorite authors, my favorite horror author of all time. So this one, same premise, except he's on a plane. He thinks he sees a monster. Nobody else can see it, so nobody believes him. Played... Geniusly by John Lithgow and directed by George Miller, who did all the Mad Max films and he did Babe 2, I believe, is the one that he directed. That's the next one you go to. Yeah, from yeah, it doesn't film, make any Miller's sense. Filmography. So he's really good at like this really crazy, chaotic style. And of course, John Lithgow is a terrific actor, really brings a lot of madness to the role. And uh, just such a scary film. Stylistically, it's wonderful. And uh, the film, the Twilight Zone movie itself, is bookended by this kind of a cold opening and then a, I guess you would call it a warm opening. I don't know what you'd call the end. Or epilogue um, with Dan Aykroyd, who all I'm going to say is he says the line, do you want to see something really scary? And that wraps up. John Lithgow's story, and it's it's the best part of the movie, in my opinion. So, Nightmare at 20,000 Feet, starring John Lithgow, 22 minutes long. There you go. And I'll let you go again, because I went, I did two okay. in there. All right. This one is one that I had never heard of, and a fact that I was unaware of. So, when I say Black Sabbath, what do you think of? Music. Exactly, right? Or the <gasps> movie starring a couple Pittsburgh Steelers, I think. Were they the ones that were in? They were. Oh no, they had a movie called Black Sunday. Okay, that had a couple athletes starring right. in the movie. So obviously, when I say Black Sabbath, you're probably going to think of the of the rock group Black Sabbath. Well, they actually got their name from this horror anthology movie called Black Sabbath, and there are three stories in this uh, book ended by. So it's got a, a prologue and an epilogue by the wonderful Boris Karloff, but the film is in Spanish. Or Italian, I should say, and so you've got to you've got to be able you've got to be willing to read the subtitles. the The best of the three stories comes uh, again at the end, just like with the Twilight Zone movie, and it's called "The Drop of Water," and it involves this woman who uh, is called in. I believe she's some sort of a nurse. She's called in 
to uh, attend to this dead body, to kind of dress it a little bit, to prepare it, get it ready for burial. And the this this dead body is just really twisted and scary looking. I could see this especially creeping out kids, but to me, I was I was kind of creeped out too. So as she's preparing her body, she notices this ring on her finger, on the cadaver's finger, and her temptation. She gives way to her temptation, and she steals the ring from this dead body. She does that. She goes home, and all of a sudden, she starts hearing this constant drop of water, and, you know, she'll go and she'll dry up that faucet, and then she'll hear it from somewhere else. And then also she starts hearing this really annoying fly. This movie is all about atmosphere, color. It looks beautiful. And the the the, uh, the cadaver that they have in this film is just so creepy. And the lesson you learn from this film is don't steal things from dead people. Don't do it. It has dire consequences. That's all I'm going to say. But it's called The Drop of Water from the film Black Sabbath, and it's 22 minutes long. All right. Um, so stealing things from dead people, that can work into my next thing. Okay. So I, I really, really wanted to mention the modern um, – paragon of horror anthology and that is american horror story okay now on this two-hour vhs tape i'm not gonna be able to fit an entire season but the way they do things is that each 13 episode or so season is a new story based somewhere in horror which is why it can be considered an anthology right right? and the cool thing that they do with it is that they bring back the same cast members year in and year out just playing different people in a different or maybe connected world. Okay. My favorite still is, though, the first season of American Horror Story, where we're introduced to a young family coming in, moving into a a giant, scary-looking house that turns out to be haunted. Um, Anyone in the house's history that is murdered on the grounds stays there to haunt the premise. And so they get to meet, through the course of the season, all these different folks that have lived in the house for years and years before, um, that are coming back to either teach our heroes a lesson or try to enact revenge or try to help them, all sorts of people. Um, but the first episode is what I put on the tape to get you started and hooked. Oh, wow. Then you can go look up the rest. So the moral of that story is don't get murdered at this house. I guess. Correct. <laughs> okay. I will admit I haven't seen any of these that you've suggested so far. I'm giving you something to look up. Uh, so my next pick kind of uh, follows a similar theme, not a similar theme, but similar format as yours. It was a TV movie made in the 70s, and it was an anthology movie. So there were three stories, three different stories, but the main character was played by the same actress, a Miss Karen Black. Clever. And the name of this film is Trilogy of Terror, and again... All three of these were written by Richard Matheson, the ge- the the king of horror, in my opinion. I know a lot of people would say Stephen King or somebody else, but Richard Matheson is really the best. And again, it comes in the last story as the best one, and it's called Amelia, based on a short story uh, called Prey, P-R-E-Y, by Richard Matheson. And it involves this woman who... Uh, gets this doll that she's going to get a, give away as a gift. It's like this tribunal 
African doll that just looks kind of hideous. It has these sharp teeth, and he has this little spear. Just this little guy. A little tiki doll from the Brady Bunch movie. Right, right. (laughs) And somehow this little doll comes to life over the course of her evening and terrorizes her. And so she's just trying to stay alive for the the 24 minutes that this thing lasts. And it has some things going against it. You know, you would think, oh, that I bet the graphics are really outdated and it's a TV movie, so maybe the quality is not that great. This is one that people frequently reference, uh, Trilogy of Terror, Amelia, because it is still terrifying to this day, I think. It's just... it. Ooh. And it has just such a terrifying image to end the episode. I would suggest Trilogy of Terror. It was a TV made-for-TV movie, so it's somewhat appropriate. I don't remember there being a lot of blood or gore or anything like that. But uh, check it out. 24 minutes long. There you go. And so American Horror Story, the first episode's about 45 minutes, so I took up a chunk of time. I'll yes. let you get one more in before I give okay. you my final one. Okay. So uh, this one, again, I'm kind of coming full circle with these because we've talked about the Twilight Zone. And uh, one thing I didn't mention about the Simpsons Treehouse Horror, uh, Treehouse of Horror Season 4, the the school bus is one of three paintings that is referenced in the episode. So it's Bart in a suit – presenting each painting that then from the painting you get the episode. That concept is based on The Night Gallery, the series that Rod Serling did after The Twilight Zone. So you've got Rod Serling doing his normal uh, pre-episode presenting, you know, his prologue, dressed up. He's in this gallery unveiling these paintings, and these paintings show some sort of an image that they use to introduce each segment. This segment is the very first episode of The Pilot, which was a TV movie, and the TV movie was so successful that they, they, they then went on to make a series. It's called The Cemetery, Ooh. and it stars Roddy McDowell, who you will know from the Planet, Planet of, the of the Apes films. Yeah. In this film, he is a dead ringer for Jim Carrey. Just think of like Jim Carrey in a an Andy Kaufman Tony Clifton wig, and you've got Roddy McDowell. His features look exactly. You could see Jim Carrey doing this role, and he really chews up the scenery in this. He's he's got this southern southern accent, and it takes place in this uh, this mansion of a home. He's this really rotten nephew that is trying to weasel his way into this home because his uncle is going to pass away soon. He's terminally ill, and he can't be open. He can't be near an open window because then he'll get pneumonia and his chances of dying will increase significantly. So I wonder what our hero is going to do. Yeah. he. Let's just say he parks him next to a scenic part of the house, <laughs> and his uncle dies. He inherits all this money in this house. Well, in his uncle's home, there are various paintings— Again, tying along with the theme of the night gallery. And in one of the paintings, there is a painting of the mansion house as well as the family cemetery plot. The uncle has painted this portrait. As he passes the painting one day after his uncle has passed away, he notices 
there's something a little different about the painting. There's a freshly dug grave, presumably for where his uncle is going to be buried, right? Throughout the episode, he starts noticing little differences in the painting, and he starts to go mad. And I won't say what happens, but let's just say it's an episode that has a double twist. Double twists are always fun because you think, oh, they twisted it, and then you get another twist. So it's two twists for the price of one. Check it out. It's the reason I put this toward the end of my list is the length, 33 minutes, and also it's it's difficult to find. You have to uh you can stream the Night Gallery on Hulu, but they do not stream the pilot episode of the Night Gallery. Oh, man. So you have to check it out from your library or you have to buy the first full season on uh, uh Amazon or eBay cuz it only comes in the first full season DVD set. Gotcha. And it's not available to stream anywhere else but Hulu, but the pilot episode is not available. So the I cemetery. can find it all those places or on your mixtape. <laughs> That's right. You can find it on my mixtape. All right. Okay. I've saved my best for last. And Ooh. when you first told me that we were going to be talking about horror anthologies and what my favorite favorites were, my real questions were that I heard coming out of your mouth were, what's your favorite Twilight Zone episode and why is it Taki Tina? Okay. Because Ooh, that is far and away just the seminal episode of the greatest series of horror anthologies. My name is Taki Tina. And I'm going to kill you. It does not <laughs> get creepier than that episode, but that was too easy. And I knew I could talk about it anyway, so I brought a different episode of The Twilight Zone. Okay. Maybe one that people that have seen less than two episodes might not have heard of. Kind okay. Of right, because I think Takitina is the one that people are going to recognize. But go back and watch all of it, because in there, you're also going to find five characters in search of an exit. Oh, yes. I know this one. Which is my personal favorite, where you have these these five very, very unique characters, a major in the army, a dancer, a clown, a Scotsman with bagpipes, and a tramp that all wake up one day in this cylindrical cage, this metal, just eerily blank-looking prison for all intents and purposes without any memory of where they came from or or what they're going to do or why they're there. Um, And they start hypothesizing (laughs) um, why they're there and, and what this means and what their existence is and how to get out. And so eventually they figure out how to climb to the top and then we, the viewers, find out just what they were the whole time. That is a good one. It's it's different. Uh, and I, when I was going through this, I, I almost put an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents and The Twilight Zone on here, but there just wasn't enough time. Uh, do you have an honorable mention that you'd like to mention? Um, every single other episode of The Twilight Zone. There I, you go. I think that it doesn't. Yeah. Um, the very first episode where the guy finds out that he's all alone in the world, um, they play with that again in a, an episode that we've talked about where a guy finds out he's all alone and yes. he finally has time to read, but he breaks uh, his glasses and yes. he can't. Uh, there's The Twilight Zone is the place to go. If this is your kind of genre, as it was mine growing up, um, the New Year's Day marathon of The Twilight Zone is oh, yeah. where you can just set the VCR to record. And sit back and relax. Luckily, you don't have to choose because you can stream all of those on Netflix, Netflix. and Hulu as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so mine is not my favorite by any means. I loved the premise, though. And if you're doing them, if you've done the math on my mixed tape, you'll know that I only have about 12 minutes left. 
And for that reason, I'm going to submit for your approval not an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, but a segment from a show called Dimension 404, which is a new show on Hulu. I've only seen this one episode, and it's called Matchmaker. The reason I only put 12 minutes on here uh, or I'm allowing my tape to run out on this episode is because once you get to what's really going on, the magic of the episode kind of wears off. And I, it doesn't really Aww. stick the ending as much as I would hope. But it's Matchmaker, and the episode starts out with this guy that's in this coffee shop with this girl. You could tell they're on a first date. It's going. It's very awkward. He seems very nice. She seems not interested at all. In fact, she's just staring at her iPad. Seems like she's elsewhere. And they end the date, and he's like, uh, this isn't going well, is it? She's like, no, in fact, you can leave. Goodbye. So just Aww. really weird first date. And this guy's depressed. He goes to his roommate. He's like, I'm never going to find somebody. And his friend, his uh, roommate convinces him to go online to this site called Matchmaker, where they will match you. They'll You can plug in all your likes and dislikes, and they'll match you with somebody that's 100% your match. So he's matched with this woman that he goes on a date with. They, they really hit things off. And, uh, you know, two months later, he's thinking, I want to ask her to marry me. And his roommate's like, ah, you might want to take it slow. I don't know if that's such a good idea. Well, he uh, proposes to this girl, and she does not take it well. In fact, she gets increasingly more flustered and annoyed with this guy to the point where she picks up her phone and she's like, oh, give me a break. And she puts a big X on her phone. And all of a sudden these guys swoop into the room and they take oh, no. this guy. And so you're wondering, what's going on here? Well, it turns out that this guy is a clone that this female has ordered that is a part of this matchmaker program. Whoa. If it doesn't work out, they have a returns program. And so he's being sent back as part of the returns program. And that's really the best part of the episode. So if you can only watch those first 12 minutes, that's good. My honorable mention, and I'll mention this because uh, they're reviving this show. It's a show called Amazing Stories, produced by Steven Spielberg. Uh, and my favorite episode of Amazing Stories was Go to the Head of the Class. It's 45 minutes long. You can't find it unless you buy the DVD on Amazon or eBay. So not as accessible. So that's my honorable mention. If I could fit in a couple more honorable mentions also that are too long, there's a new show called Lore on Amazon Prime I that's based that. on a podcast. Mm -hmm. I watched a couple episodes. They're pretty long. You could just go listen to the podcast. Sure. And, and podcasts don't let them lend themselves to VHS tapes. Yeah. Um, or also Black Mirror episodes are far too long to be able to fit on just mm, a two-hour. I haven't hour. seen that one. Um, but those are other entries, mo more modern entries into the horror anthology genre. Well, Cole, thank you so much. Thanks for helping our listeners come up with ideas for what they can watch when they don't have a ton of time, but maybe they could watch something that's 20 minutes long to get their spooks and chills in. There you have it. Those are our anthology horror film slash TV show mixed tapes submitted for your approval. When we return, we're going to be speaking with Spencer and Jerem, presumably from BYU Sports Nation. This is Screen Cleaning on The Matt Townsend Show. Thank you. 
Welcome back to, uh, I almost said BYU Sports Nation. Welcome back to Screen Cleaning on the Matt Townsend Show. It is that time of the show when we head over to BYU Sports Nation and speak with our good friends Spencer and Jerem, who I'm sure are going to be uh, engaging right now in a conversation involving a certain baseball game. Um, nope, Stranger Things. Yeah, it's all about Stranger Things. Oh, I, I might have guessed. For the first time in BYU Sports Nation history, we uh, are doing something on our green screen. <laughs> really? With Stranger Things today. <laughs> oh. Off the top. Off the top. We're in the buyer's clothes right now. I'm Will, and uh, Spencer is Jonathan. Are you yep. serious? Yes. Yeah. We have lights strung up, egos. Do you have a bat with nails through it? No. They wouldn't let us have that. We have a bat, but not a bat with nails in it. Ah, darn it. Well, yeah, that was my dilemma at the beginning of this show. I said, Cole, I've been waiting for season two of Stranger Things to start, but I've been waiting even longer for the Dodgers to make it to the World Series, so which do I watch? Game three or Stranger Things? Well, for you, Mm. game three. Yeah. For us. For Spencer, it's the women's volleyball match. <laughs> Eighth ranked BYU versus 18th ranked San Diego. Oh my really goodness! Good yeah, and for me, it's Stranger Things. All we right, live in a world where you can stream all of them at the same time. That's in true. The, in the right side up. You know, you can watch you can watch the game on your TV. True that. You can stream Stranger Things on your computer, and you can keep tabs on the BYU volleyball game on your phone via the BYU TV app. And so. then, what do I do tomorrow when it's Game Four, and there's Stranger Things still on Netflix, and there's the BYU San Jose football game? Exactly what I just told you to do. You use three different media platforms and stream everything. Yes, but but the thing is, <laughs> I'm not going to do that. <laughs> Uh, I can't. Well, that's your own choice. I can't do screen in, you know, like have five different screens on the the same TV. I, I can't do that, and I yeah, I, I'm not a multitasker. Okay. Although I can eat my nachos while I watch the Dodger game, I am good at that. That is quite the talent that you have there. <laughs> Just don't spill. If you spill the nachos, it's a bad sign for your Dodgers. Ooh, I didn't spill the other night. That's the frustrating thing. Well, that's why they made it a game in the 11th inning, okay? I will say I do I do think there's some positive to take out of that uh, game because one of the comments I heard from uh, a commentator on one of the sports channels was that one thing the Dodgers have not had to do in the playoffs is have their back up against the wall. And they did on uh, for game two, and they actually did quite well with their backs up against the wall. So I think this yeah. is going to be a great series. Yeah, two really good teams. This could be epic. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if this goes, you know, seven. And that could be fun. Houston's waited forever, you know. That's true. To, to go to the World Series, to win in the World Series. Uh, the Dodgers are anxious to return to the glory of 88. So it's a, it's a fun time. The Wait, when, when is Stranger Things uh, slated? Is it early 80s? Mid 80s? Uh, this, this season two picks up on October 28th, 1984. Yeah, okay. it's a year. It takes place a year later. National championship season for BYU football. Ooh, that is true. <laughs> and you know, I'm excited to see Sean Astin from the Goonies in this season of Stranger Things. Yeah, that, I, I watched a video on YouTube uh, along these lines where a guy broke down the homages to all these '80s classics and Stephen King movies, uh, E.T. and Jaws, and all this stuff. It's amazing. Oh, I'd love to see that. What they've done 
with this show to play off of all these classics. I've really enjoyed it. So I, I just love the show. I love the show. Other than Stranger Things Season 2, what are you talking about on BYU Sports Nation today? Uh, is there anything else? That kind of covers it, doesn't the it? Demogorgon, uh, Dennis Pitta <laughs> will join us to discuss whether BYU will win tomorrow. Uh, we will play a game called Stranger Thing. Yes, comparing two things. Things within BYU athletics. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, and, and our Twitter question today is uh, along those lines as well. It is, what is the strangest thing you expect to happen in tomorrow's San Jose State versus BYU game? Hmm. Affectionately known as the FBS Bowl because neither team has beaten an FBS team. So they get a, they get a bowl game after all, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's Hawaii over a holiday. Brigham will. Yeah. San Jose State's. Yeah. They already played Hawaii. They already played in Hawaii. Okay. So earlier this week, Jerem, you said BYU will win this football game. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. Okay. It's going to it's going to happen. Yeah. Yes. All right. So now again, you've given I've got this dilemma because if they're going to win, you would think that I would have to watch that. But I guess it's on at a different time. I'm on time. BYU TV. <gasps> and BYU Renny. You're serious? I can finally watch a BYU football game. Yes. Wow. You don't have the the ESPN? No. 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 What? Uh, this conversation's <laughs> over. Yes. <laughs> and on that note, we're going to let you guys get ready for your show, which is coming up here in just about three and a half minutes. BYU Sports Nation, you're not going to want to miss it. Stranger things are happening on the program today. Anyway, as we wrap up our show here on Screen Cleaning, it is time now for our panning for good segment that we like to have at the end of every show. There's good in them dire hills. For those of you who simply cannot forgive me for putting anything Twilight Zone related on my mixed tape of horror anthologies, then uh, you'll forgive me now because I want to tell you about something that is quite unique and quite entertaining called the Twilight Zone radio dramas. This is something where they took all the episodes, if not all, most of the episodes of The Twilight Zone, and they dramatized them for radio. And Stacy Keach, the actor, is the takes the place of Rod Serling. So he introduces all of these episodes, and he even acts in one or two of them. They've rounded up all these various celebrities to, uh, to partake in this fun series that really, it's just, it's just a feast for the senses. To If you're not in a place where you can watch an episode of The Twilight Zone, but you're in your car, on a road trip, even on your way to work, it's just a great thing to listen to. And you can actually buy them per episode. I think it's like a dollar per episode on a Twilight Zone radio app. So go check it out and go check out some of these picks on our anthology horror mixed tapes. That's going to do it for screen cleaning today. Happy Halloween and uh, enjoy all the various sport even, sporting events and different shows that you can watch on Netflix this weekend. We'll be back next week. <laughs>